Welcome to the Make Ready with the Experts podcast. I'm your host, Fernando Coelho. We're here at Pantio Studios bringing you the very best from in and around the firearms industry, covering topics like guns, gear, firearms training, self-defense, and so much more. Everything from industry insights about the latest gear and training techniques, to hunting, survival, and empty hands. But this isn't just about the guns, folks. This is about the stories. Military, law enforcement, and civilian stories of heroics protecting our country, fellow citizens, friends, and neighbors. Today's episode is from the Inside Story series of videos available on Make Ready TV. In this episode, The Warfighters, three Pantio firearms instructors sit down, discuss current and somewhat controversial topics based on questions and comments from our viewers. With the positive feedback we got from Inside Story Warfighters, we wanted to go in a different direction for the second episode of Inside Story. We started with episode one, being the soldiers. So we wanted to do the former law enforcement officers for episode two. So episode two, we put together three of our instructors with LE backgrounds. We grabbed uh, Dave Spaulding, who I've known for God knows how long, mid nineties. I am a retired law enforcement officer with 30 plus years of experience in a wide variety of assignments. Everywhere from dispatching cars, to working the floors of the jail, to patrol, to evidence collection, investigations, undercover operations, SWAT, and training. Uh, grab uh, Wes Doss to sit in. I'm Wes Doss. I'm the president, founder, and senior instructor at Kyber Interactive Associates, or what's simply known as Kyber. It's a specialized emergency response training, research, and consulting firm based out of Arizona. I'm also a 20 plus year veteran of the Army, as well as law enforcement here in the United States. And the young whippersnapper was Richard Nance of the three. I've been a police officer for 22 years. I was a member of our department SWAT team for over a decade. I was the team leader. I'm a firearms instructor and a combatives instructor. I'm a lifelong martial artist. And in my experience, what I've realized is that most people are lacking the ability to integrate empty handed techniques with their shooting. So instead of going to downtown Columbia to Bourbon, uh, the restaurant where we filmed episode one, we figured, well, weather's not bad. A little cool, a little cool at night, but it's fine. Why don't we just get a campfire going, go to the gun range, and just sit around the fire and have cigars and drinks? What could go wrong? So here is the first segment of Inside Story, The Blue Line. Why are you here? Who is he? Your grandson. <laughs> you look about like you're 12. <laughs> Actually, call this little meeting because we got some questions from some viewers that want some, what I think is pertinent information. And I think you guys are the right ones to answer this. Well, you're the right one to answer this. Well, and I appreciate it. It's good that. you brought somebody with you, okay? So what I thought we'd do is like, kind of throw these things out at you and you guys give me your thoughts. And I, I, I'd really like to hear what you guys got to say. Is that cool? Absolutely. All right, good Sounds deal. Good. First thing that comes up, and this is a pretty good question. What are the differences between students that are law enforcement versus students that are private or legally armed citizens? 
I'm not sure there is a difference. What do you guys think? I think there's a difference in that law enforcement officers are a little more difficult to teach because they tend to think that they know perhaps more than they do. The whole show me thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Not a bad idea. Wes, do you go about, well, I mean, there's going to be different applications, but when we're talking about nuts and bolts, the foundational type skills, do you see a big difference in how they're taught? No, I, <clears throat> I think a lot of it's in the, the application of the skills because, you know, one group is, you know, personal self-defense slash just enthusiast, and the other one is, and is the one most likely to have to use the skills. So kind of the mindset of how we're going about it's a little bit different. You know, when I see, since I've started, I, I'm like you for the vast majority of my adult life, it was law enforcement training. Mm -hmm. A little bit of military here and there. In the last nine years since I've been doing more armed citizens, I have found that there is a little bit of a difference. And the difference actually comes in the fact that you know, law enforcement doesn't kill the enemy. They police society. Thus, their goal is to take people into custody. So many, maybe the majority of their confrontations are extremely close because they tend to happen during that arrest situation. The officer's responding. Right. Armed Reacting. citizens, not so much. They're back a little bit. It's mm -hmm. a conversational distance, you know, more like a, a five or six yard distance where they're they're across the, the width of a car or the length of the parking space or in their driveway. Whereas the cop is actually in there snatching onto somebody. So quite often their shooting start as a fight mm. where an armed citizen starts as a conversation or a confrontation. Well, and, and, and as an armed citizen, there's that opportunity and, and hopefully the forethought to avoid. And many times with the law enforcement officer, it's the statutory obligation, you're there. You got a responsibility, you can't leave. You know, when it comes to disarming, we talk about uh, if a private citizen is accosted, someone sticks a gun in their face, they probably want something from that person. So there's this verbiage that they can use. Hey, please don't hurt me. They, they put their hands in a tactically sound position so they can move offline and grab the gun. Mm -hmm. A cop, if you have a gun in your face, it's, it's probably about to be fired. Right. There's, there's no negotiation. So definitely different. You know, uh, something else I've noticed, I've taken some of the classes from some of the former special operations and military guys. And I've noticed in their classes, they do a lot of long distance pistol shooting, what I would call 25 yards and out. Mm -hmm. And it kind of struck me that that's the military. They try to kill the enemy from great distance. So guys from that type of background, it only makes a certain amount of sense that they'll try to stretch the distance out on that handgun. Sure. Um, as we all realize with active shooters and things like that, being able to use that pistol a little further away is a good idea. But let me ask you, Wes, how far is too far with a pistol and at what point should you just leave? Well, beyond that 25 yard mark, you had some sort of alternatives. I mean, for starters, more than anything else, that's the gun that we struggle with the most, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's the one with the greatest liability behind it. Um, so making a good decision when those distances get a little bit further, I think is important. Mm -hmm. Your specialty is kind of close quarter pistol craft and, you know, intertwining open hand skills with handguns. What do you think? I think that we assume since a handgun fires a projectile that our handgun encounters are going to be at distance, even seven yards, 10 yards, 15 yards. Uh, Leoka stats don't bear that out. Uh, zero to 10 feet is where 50% of the cops are killed every year. Not one year, but for decades. Yeah, yeah. And zero to five feet being the highest, you know, the deadliest range there, zero to five feet. 
that taking how custody much, distance. How much do cops, how much do private citizens train zero to five feet with a pistol? Mm -hmm. And the naive response is, well, if I can hit from 100 yards, hitting from five feet is that much easier, but we all know that's not there's the case. There's no pandemonium, case. there's no duress, there's no blood, the mud, and the beer kind of thing right. going on. Yeah, it's, it's a night and day comparison. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. This first question was actually pretty valid. I've been in classes before where you have guys that are civilians, uh, and then you have guys that are uh, law enforcement and even a mix of soldiers. So it's interesting to see the dynamic uh, with some folks that are uh, highly trained civilians uh, mixed in with civilians that have very little background, mixed in with law enforcement officers that they may have a decent background in uh, training and have, have trigger time behind them and those that need a lot more help. But it, the important thing is seeing guys together at the range, oh, and gals, trying to get better skills and going to instructors like these guys to learn how to shoot better. That's that's always awesome to see. So now the next question that was asked of our, of our uh, panel, what not to do or what to do when being pulled over by a police officer? Boy, do I know this one, and I know what not to do, but here you go, folks. You know how fast you were going? What? <laughs> what shouldn't you say to a cop? <laughs> oh, man. I didn't do it. Uh, well, <clears throat> wasn't gee, me. It's not Christmas. mine. I'm holding it for a friend. My pet peeve, <laughs> when I'd make a traffic stop, listen, I wasn't a traffic guy. I was not the kind of guy that liked to stake out stop signs or, you know, you know, that that spot in the road where it goes from 45 to 25 and 45 again, you know what I'm talking about? That was not me. So if I stopped you, I stopped you because there was something. And when they, I would walk up and they would say, why don't you go arrest or accost a real criminal? Just, just don't you have anything better to do? I'm, I'm stopping you for a reason because you did something wrong. and. A lot of times, what would have been a warning, now a ticket. And, and I'll say it right here on camera, I'll admit it right up front. What, what do you think? What, was, what drives you nuts? Oh, the one that used to bother me the most is, you know, I pay your salary. <laughs> <laughs> mm. so, so does another 150,000 other people. As if or cops don't pay taxes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah <laughs> I don't pay taxes. Yeah. What, what irritated you? You know, there's nothing like being in a restaurant or something and a kid's misbehaving and the parents say, hey, little Jimmy, if you don't behave, you're gonna go to jail. You know, we're always, we're always the bad guys from the time, you know. Well, they specifically target you. That man over there is gonna arrest yeah, you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> who was the, the African-American comic that actually made the video what not to say was to that police. Chris Rock? Chris Rock. Was it Chris yeah. Rock? Yeah. You know what? I'm not to get arrested. There was a lot of <laughs> truth. I'm not getting your ass kicked by the police. Please, that's it. That's there it. was a lot of truth <laughs> in that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was funny, but there was also a lot of truth in that video. What? What? How to get your ass kicked by the police. <laughs> yep. Gee, Christmas. If you follow these simple pointers, you probably won't get your ass kicked by the police. what to say to a cop and what not to say to a cop. Sometimes telling you the truth is what's going to help you. Case in point, 
I am with my employees at a Mexican restaurant, having a good old time. Good food, good drinks, non-alcoholic drinks, but good drinks. And off I go to go home, they go to go home. As I'm going home, something is not sitting right in my stomach. Something about that Mexican food ain't doing well. I figured, ah, no big deal. I only got about 10 minutes to get home. Every minute that went by was like an hour. All of a sudden, I am getting off the highway onto the uh, exit to get to my home, and I'm maybe four miles out. I don't think I'm going to make it, so I am hauling ass down the road to try to make it home. As far as I'm concerned, the only thing that matters is getting in my driveway to get to my house. And lo and behold, highway patrol going in the opposite direction. What does he do? Well, he sees me whipping past him at about 80, so he turns around. I see him turn around. Oh, what the hell? I'm not going to have him chase me. I just pull over and wait. He comes up. License and registration. Do you know how fast you're going? And all I could think of saying to that poor officer was, Officer, can you please hurry up and write that ticket? Because I really got to go to the bathroom and I don't think I'm going to make it home. That, that I'm not sure if it was the cold sweat that he saw on my face, the desperation in my eyes, or the fact that I already have my driver's license and registration ready to give him so he can go ahead and write me a ticket so I can get home. What does he do? Stands there, maybe two seconds, felt like two hours, hands me back my license and registration and says, good luck, I hope you make it. Needless to say, I hauled ass the rest of the way home and just in the nick of time. So to that officer that day, <laughs> thank you, dude, you hooked me up. Any other time, I'll take the ticket. So, anyway, enough of my story. Moving on. When do you intervene in a situation, either as a civilian or a law enforcement officer? Damn good question. And here we go. What are some of the considerations when deciding whether to intervene when as an off-duty officer or as a civilian? You know, I've seen this debated a lot. I've actually seen some some well-known writers and trainers of law enforcement say the idea of being a good witness is the same thing as being a coward. I'm not so sure. No, we, uh, we had an incident, and I won't name agencies or, or specific locations, but it was in Southern Cal where an off-duty deputy uh, took action in a fast food restaurant, in a popular touristy fast food restaurant, uh, where he had gotten himself you know, in a position of advantage bad guy spun around and shot, overshot him, and killed a small kid that was behind him. Oh. There's, there's a lot of things that are going on, and to evaluate the totality of what's happening or what could potentially happen, the intended, the unintended consequences, I think it's something that everybody needs to think about. Yeah, was so that the McDonald's restaurant? That was the McDonald's yeah. restaurant. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that's actually the missing link in private citizens' training. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, they're armed, they take a CCW course, maybe even they, they take some shooting courses, and maybe even, they even have considerable skill with their firearm. But what they tend not to have, and what they tend to need the most, is the wherewithal to decide whether or not to intervene based on the circumstances. I'll give you an example of that. You walk into a gas station that's being robbed. Obviously, if you have your child with you or someone else that you're protecting, that's a consideration. Another consideration is, is there another suspect that you're not aware of? And another uh, problem could be that you intervene by saying, drop the gun. And now what have you just done? 
Yeah. Now you've given this suspect, you've startled him, and you've given him a head start. So now, maybe if it wasn't necessarily his intent, which we would never know, to kill the clerk, your loud verbal command may prompt him to kill the clerk. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, if you make the decision that deadly force is justified, it's best to use deadly force without giving a verbal warning. And that's tough to understand tactically when that makes sense and when it doesn't. Well, it isn't even even the application sometimes. Um, I, I, when I was back east, when I was working back east, I got asked to be a, a guest at this, this uh, self-defense organization's meeting and they were enacting these little walk-through scenarios. And one of them, and, and you know, I live in, in Arizona, so our setup for like ATM machines is different than ATM machines in New York and Boston. We Yours don't are have, hotter. They're hotter and, and there's like four of them and they're outdoors. We don't have a box that you have to card yourself in and out of to mm -hmm. get into the ATMs for most places. And the scenario was you're in there in the middle of the night, you're getting your money out of the ATM machine, you turn around and there's a guy standing at the door with a crowbar in his hands. What are you gonna do? And the overwhelming response from everybody that was there was, I show him my gun. I'm thinking, why? There goes oh, your it, element of surprise. Well, it's going to scare him off. No, it's going to scare him out to your car where he's going to wait in the dark, take your money and your gun. Do you have a cell phone? Well, yeah. Well, why aren't you just calling 911 while you're inside that box? That obviously he can't get through right now. And that said, because you're absolutely on point, but I think another aspect of this question is, what is worth intervening for? What is your, your line in the sand? You are at the scene of an active shooter situation or you see someone trying to kidnap someone, trying to force someone at gunpoint into a car or whatever. Nothing good is going to happen to that person when they're transported to another location. So again, yeah, do you take a stand there? Are you willing to risk yourself for the greater good? As corny as that sounds, that's a real thing. Well, let's go back to your scenario where you walk into the gas station. Number one, you don't own the gas station. Number two, you don't know the guy at the gas station. Number three, the gas station's got insurance. If you get involved in a shooting and, and it goes no further than just the grand jury, mm -hmm. you're looking at somewhere between ten dollars and $25,000. Oh, yeah, yeah. For a gas station that you're just getting gas. Well, you, even, even, for the, even for the officer. You know, there was a time when I first started, you had a flat badge, you had a wallet. You got told, don't intermingle the two, have a separate badge. And I got more guys now because we ID a class. Well, I, it's all knowing the same. Well, what happens when you get in an armed robbery and you give up your badge? They know you're a police officer. We just had that very same thing the other day. We did a, a segment on concealed carry, off-duty carry. And yeah, there were cops who were carrying one wallet because they're probably more concerned with being able to identify themselves. Or it could be a young cop who, when he opens the, his wallet at the grocery store, wants people to see the badge, to think let's, he's cool. Let's even put more BS on it. <clears throat> they're more concerned about getting a traffic ticket well, than being killed in a robbery. That's, there's some truth to and that. And there was actually a situation in Los Angeles County, I want to say back in the 90s. Uh, deputy was uh, with his girlfriend or wife, I don't remember which, but she was in a beauty salon. And he was just sitting there reading a magazine while she was getting her hair done. Robbery comes in. They start asking for wallets. The deputy's badge and ID is in his wallet, and he's not armed. Case Guess what happened to him? Yeah, absolutely. Gun, yeah. badge, and ID are a trio. You don't have one or two without the other. And you don't put the badge and ID the same place you put your credit cards and your money. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. Good points. That good was a good points. question. Absolutely. How has technology changed day-to-day -day policing? From a guy that did not have a computer in his car it's big. Let me tell you a quick story for you guys to chime in. 
about two weeks before I retired, uh, all I was basically doing is I was working on that ILF at International Training Conference. You got a friend? Yeah, he likes Crown, apparently. Get rid of me. Well, he's, maybe he's not bad. Anyway, right before Let's I retired, be now keep in mom. mind <laughs> that I had spent most of my time as a lieutenant in an undercover narcotics unit, away from my agency. So we had guys coming on the job that had been there five, six years that had never seen my face. I wasn't around. Some would consider them lucky. Anyway, I'm at one of our district substations, and I'm standing there and I'm just talking to some people, and this young deputy comes in and he slams his books and his clipboard and stuff down on the table, and he says, my in-car computer's broke, they can't get it fixed, how am I supposed to do police work? Well, everybody kind of turns and looks to the lieutenant in the room, and I never, I didn't know this guy, but I looked at him and I said, well, let me tell you something, kid. Why don't you get in your car, go up, drive up and down the streets, especially those back alleys, and look for something suspicious. And then get out of your car and ask people questions. You know, it's called investigating. I'll tell you what, when the computers are down in the cars, you've never heard officers ask dispatch to repeat as much as that. You know, what happened to your gut? Remember when you, oh yeah, yeah, th yeah. this guy doesn't look right, and so you, you, and it was perfectly okay. You didn't have to have probable cause to get out and talk to a citizen. You yeah. could do that all you wanted. But everything is now in-car computer. And I, and I got nothing against in-car computers. But it seems like we're totally relying on them. So. Yeah, you know, it, it, and it isn't so much, I mean, it is, but it isn't just that, though. Um, when I left my agency, we had a laptop and MDT. We even had LPRs, license mm -hmm. plate readers. I mean, I had no passenger compartment in my vehicle. I've got all this crap over there. I know that I'm going to burst into flames if I get into an accident because the car is <laughs> electrified. But even on the use of foresight, you know, one, there isn't anything that we do that isn't covered on camera now, good, bad, or otherwise. And we've also got this reliance, not, not, to, not to everybody, but we've talked about this before, on all our less lethal devices sure. that allow us to have proximity. And you know, in, in many departments, the people that gravitate to those are less likely to use force, a little bit more timid. A lot of them are new hires. They're not the most tactically inclined. And we have evidence caught on camera out of California recently uh, of the deputy or the officer that has a taser failure, then gets chased what, 300 yards down the street, yeah. hit in the head. The bad guy steals the officer's car, then gets out, gets in his car, then almost hits the deputy with his car, and still the deputy still fails to take action. And it's like over-reliance on technology without a plan B. And this is one of my pet peeves. Have you ever noticed that pepper spray and tasers seem to work better on cops in training than they do suspects oh, in the street? And that's a great point. You know why? And they expect it to be exactly the same way as they felt. Yep. Exactly. Well, in the academy, the academy class before mine was a bunch of tough Marines, and I saw them crying like babies when they got pepper sprayed. So what does that do to me? This is going to suck. And you already go into it thinking it's going to incapacitate you, and guess what it does? But no one told the crook who's trying to kill you that he's supposed to go down on the ground and grab his face or, and everything else when he's pepper sprayed. Or the suspect that grew up on hot pepper. Well, I, 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 I use this as an example. I'll ask in class, you know, how many, how many people in class have been pepper sprayed? How many have been tased? In the overwhelming response, if I offer to do one or the other, everybody wants to be tased because usually when the clicking stops, the, the pain stops. But I'll ask him, I said, so when it happened to you, somebody, 
much like myself, a sadistic DT instructor, had you doing something so it was a perfect application. Eyes, nose, mouth wide open. I even got you to ingest some, because that's the added bonus. If I can get you to burp it up, I know I got it going on. I said, how many of you have actually used pepper spray and gotten more on yourself putting cuffs on somebody than you ever got in your face? Everyone. Because we're the only people that will stand still voluntarily to get sprayed in the face with pepper spray or tased. Everybody else covers up. They move around, they bounce around. It's like, so, and, and, and people get shocked. I tell you, I'm not trying to date myself, but there was a time when we had to lay our hands on everybody that we took to jail. And they're like, no way. Did you, did you interrupt Wes? He was having a great thought and you did it on purpose, didn't you? Because he was looking smarter That was you. a good transition. Okay, good job. Thank you, sir, that's fine, thank you. You're absolutely right, man. You, you're right on point and you're not dating yourself because I'm 10 years older than you are, so I, I get it. We were I talking earlier about the big flashlights. I got a box full of those big flashlights. <laughs> you had a flashlight the size of a tailpipe. I, I have a Bianchi that's, B light and the, I have a Kel light. The that's only a- thing it was good for was the old El Cabong, and many of the viewers aren't going to remember the cartoon character El Cabong, but that was what it's called. You boom, you hit him like that because they didn't have the lighting power of a key ring They're light. They're battery operated batons. You yes, want to talk about technological advancements, talk about a flashlight unbelievable how bright you can get a tiny little there's very few now. days that go by that i don't thank john matthews for existing <laughs> for and and coming up with the 6p i was at the detroit iacp i want to say about 1993 when laser products was there with just a table and a and a, and a, a logo covered tarp over it mm-hmm. and he shows me a 6p light and you would have think it. He just gave me a beacon. Oh, it was a whole grail. Oh God! What was it, like 60, 65 lumens? Sixty-five lumens of incandescent yellow light. Oh my! It was gorgeous. God, it was just awesome. I had a I had a picture in in one of the classes because I had some old buddies that were in the class, and it was a picture of me in our TAC uniform at the time, with my prized MP5 that I had to sell to somebody else, with a mag light. You know, hose clamped. Hose clamped. Nice. Hose clamped. Oh my God. Hose clamps. Yeah. <laughs> That's better than duct tape. And we stole better than those duct from tape. the SAS pictures at Princess Gate. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, had Phil, I had Phil Singleton as my, my oh, MP5 ah, operator. There you go. So, yeah. There you go. He's yeah. pretty skilled with that uh, MP5. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He can write and his I name still, in cursive. I still <laughs> like that. <laughs> Nothing against the AR-15, but I still, because yeah. you know, you guys know I worked at HK's training division yep. for a short period of time. And that roller block action, I still like it. And I'm, I'm going to tell you what, if somebody would say, give me the carbine of my choice, it'd be an HK-53. Yeah, yeah. It really would. Of course, I can buy a house cheaper than I can buy an HK-53 <laughs> now. But yeah, good, good stuff. Yeah. What's different in law enforcement, past and present? What has changed? Holy crap. Yeah. Well... You were working with Wyatt Earp, so why don't you start things off? Listen, <laughs> I can remember sitting with runners. Wyatt and Doc and I were all sitting on the porch kind of like this. You. I'm, I'm, we're trying to keep this family oriented, but I really want to say something derogatory to you. I know what you want to say. Anyway, um, you know, people ask me all the time, do you miss law enforcement? And I say, no, I miss free ammo. Yeah, I miss that a lot. Anyway, um, guys... I don't know when you went on the job, but I went on the job before Graham versus Connor, Garner versus Tennessee. Man, you're old. 1976. Um, force was applied in a good faith effort. And we were talking earlier about the kill lights, <laughs> the tailpipe like, that you put on your non-gun shoulder like this so you could El Cabong them. Mm-hmm. 
I had pretty good faith that when I hit that guy in the head with that flashlight, it was gonna work. And you know what, it did. And I hit a few people with flashlights. I you think mean this, you didn't holster it and grab I your think, side handle baton? I think the statute of limitations has passed on that, but I hit a few people. I'll never tell. And the fact of the matter is, is eat, you know, those little blood vessels or capillaries are real close to the surface of the skull right there. So when you hit them, it looks like their skull explodes. And I remember the first time I did it, I was like, oh, I killed this guy because they went down faster than gravity could pull somebody to the ground. <laughs> but you know what? It never hurt anybody seriously. And invariably, no exceptions, the next time I saw that person, they called me sir. So I think use of force and how we've now reeled it back in, and, and I, I'm gonna get passionate with you guys about this. Cops need to be cops. Law enforcement is truly like taking out the garbage. Everybody wants it done, but nobody wants to see how it's done. And now with all the proliferation of cameras. More crown. Anytime a law enforcement officer does something, it's on video somewhere. And let's face it, you can't apply force nicely. Someone's gonna get hurt, but you know what? They need to be hurt because it's justified based, according to the Fourth Amendment, based on the circumstances at hand. And we have reeled it back in so much because we don't like the way it looks on video that now we're not letting our trash collectors take out the trash because, guys, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go ahead and say it right here in front of the cameras. There are people that need to be hit. There are people that need to be shot just as much as there are people who need to be incarcerated. And I'll just throw it out there for you right now. That's true. Yeah. My dad likes to say when he was a kid, he never even considered running from the cops because he was afraid he'd get shot. Nowadays, these guys know not only we're not going to shoot them, they know we're not going to oh. we're not going to use. We're force not even going to chase them. They're not even going to prone out. They're not going to. I lived in a neighborhood yeah. with two CHP officers and a deputy sheriff that I went to school with their kids. <clears throat> I was terrified to do anything wrong because that was who we showed up. And there's a direct pipeline not to jail, it's to your parents. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's uh, how things have changed. It, you talk about people and, and, the, and, the, and the use of force. It, it's sometimes, because what we're seeing through this technology is sometimes a weird application of that force that almost looks like we've trained people to be afraid. And when we have a lack of experience, that first time you do anything, you know, guys get out of the academy, the first time you pull a car over, it's the most terrifying thing you're ever doing because you got to go talk to a person you've never talked to before. People stutter, they stammer, a hundred and some odd stops into it, it's like old home week. You watch some of these, these, this, this interaction, and you know, granted, you know, we have people making statements left and right, you know, whether it's the, the open carry or the nitwits in the Starbucks with the ARs on their back and that kind of stuff, but you watch how they're being handled by agencies, and it's like, you're, you're yelling at the video, dude, you're as wrong as you could be, yeah. stop, just calm down a little bit, relax with this guy. And then other instances, like the, the guy that got chased down the street and didn't take any action, it's like, come on, when did we stop knocking people on their butts? And it, it, it's, it's like we're not able to strike a happy medium on The this. thing is, you need to be aggressive. Taking someone into custody is not defensive. That's my problem with the term defensive tactics. And there are, yeah, if someone attacks you, you are defensive momentarily to protect yourself, but as soon as possible, you're taking the offense. And we're afraid to say that we're offensive, but if you take someone into custody, 
That's there's nothing defensive about that. Look, no. look, look it's at, totally offensive. Absolutely. Look at look at how across the board, not not individual agencies, but but across the board, laterally, how we still train for weapons retention. Mm -hmm. That that is a that is a deadly force situation when somebody's trying to take your gun. We're still locking them down and trying to shake them off yeah. the gun. Something else needs to occur during that. Lock them down, take your pin, and shove it in their neck. But most people won't do that. Exactly. I fought for my own gun four times in my law enforcement career. And I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure it was because they didn't want to pawn my gun. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure they <laughs> yeah. wanted to use it against yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? Nothing mm -hmm. against Jim Lindell. He was a pioneer in law enforcement. But I was a certified instructor in the Lindell method of a weapon yeah. retention. And I'm trapping the gun and I'm striking all that kind of stuff. And you know what? It never got that person to let go of my gun. You know what got that person to let go of my gun? Attacking him. A curly Larry and Moe right to the eye sockets or, Shut or that a computer punch to the down. throat. Because you know what you got to do? You don't attack the arm that's, that's grabbing your gun. You attack the person that's attached to that arm. Absolutely. And that's what stops it. But you know what? On video, it looks cruel, mean, and heartless. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But people need to understand that when someone's trying to take your gun, that's a deadly force situation. There's nothing you can't do. Yep. If deadly force is authorized, you can run someone over with your car. You can shove your ballpoint pin in their eye. You can bite their nose off. I mean, there's nothing you can't do if deadly force you, is authorized. You may go through a rough time with the prosecutor and going to court and all that kind of stuff, but you remember what one of my favorite lines, we're all movie guys. We've been talking about movies all day. One of my favorite lines in any movie ever was the Kevin Costner version of The Untouchables. When Sean Connery says, the first rule of law enforcement is at the end of your shift, you go home alive. And you know what? That was one of the finest pieces of cinema that was ever filmed. You know, from a, from a well, it, getting out of the movies mm -hmm. and just getting into just, you know, popular culture around us. Right. Um, and I got more kids now, and I, now I'm at that juncture now everybody's a kid, right? Um, and, and I'm with you. What do you I'm think you. I feel I'm, like? I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. But uh, I, I loved, I grew up on Wamba. And, and the, I got The people, choir practice? Choir boys. Oof. I still, we still hold choir well, practice. Well, the, the choir the practice was an <laughs> event. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But, the, but, but, but people don't, kids don't even know those life. stories. Oh, here it is. I got it. I got it. Go ahead. They don't even know those stories. They don't even know those books. And because and, and, we've moved past that to where it's the negative representation of us. Well, we were talking, Wes, there's a lot of new cops who have never heard of the Newhall incident. True. I mean, or the Norco bank robber. Yeah. Well, no, better yet, we just got done teaching in South Florida. And it was on the anniversary date of the 86 shootout. And the range master at this agency was like, we just did a whole presentation on it. And I had a whole squad of officers that, what happened in 86? It was just down the street. Have you, have you ever been down there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You don't realize from the newsreels and, and the after action reports and all the, the videos that were done, how close that all was. Oh, I just, I just sat through a briefing that Ed Morales did. Yeah. And it's like, I'm riveted because this is a guy that I want to learn from. I mean, he lived it, he did it, he was, he was part of it. I heard that briefing years ago when he was still with the FBI and he couldn't go public at a, an ASLEC conference. <clears throat> And you're absolutely right. It was just like, holy crap. Well, Aslett would be years ago, wouldn't it? Uh, Damn. I think 98, 99 it yeah. ended. Yeah. It's not yeah. my fault, but the first conference I did for Aslett as an instructor was their last conference. Albuquerque? I don't think it's because my course was that bad. <laughs> See what you did? Yeah. <laughs>
The question is handgun versus carbine. What is the primary law enforcement weapon? I have feelings on it because I think so much of law enforcement is reactive or reflective in nature. So my feeling is that the handgun will always be, always has been, always will be the primary law, or primary law enforcement firearm. My feeling is, can I please get the lighter? Yeah, the, uh, there you go. here's my thoughts is the pistol is the gun you always have with you regardless of what the call for service is. Whether you started the call off as a simply burglary investigation or a loud music call or a DV or whatever it is, it's what you have. Mm -hmm. the, the logic, which is building in an unnecessary level of anticipation and expectation into a program that you're gonna always have a rifle with you or you're gonna always be able, to, the one I hate, this is the one I love. My pistol's for me to fight back to get my rifle whip. It's like, dude, oh. if you're in the middle of something and you're stuck there, you're not fighting back to get anything. You're killing me, Smalls. You're going to run back to your weapon in a, a situation that's going to last four, five, six seconds. Exactly. Give me a break. I don't know where that came from, but it, well, the better in respect this. to all my previous instructors, that's BS. And, and, here's the, and we've talked about Mid-South today, mm -hmm. the old Shaw technique, mm -hmm. where th this is the starting position for the handguns. Well, that was done because the guys that were getting trained there, this was their primary tool. They're military guys. They're killing the enemy. But it looks right. cool, so I'm going to do it on the range. Yeah. Well, for a police officer, a neutral stance is anything but a shouldered M4. Sure. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a, it doesn't make any sense. And we all know the carbine is much easier to shoot, the patrol rifle. But it's a lot more fun to shoot than the handgun. You get more gratification from but it. But here's the thing. There's a lot of people that don't understand how it functions. And that's the problem. They're more comfortable with their pistol than they are with their carbine. Anyone can shoot a carbine, but can you run a carbine efficiently? Mm -hmm. That's, that's mm -hmm. the issue. Well, you know, the situations for law enforcement's changed so, dra so dramatically and so quickly. I'll give you an example. I was on a domestic call one time in a very economically depressed location. And in the I'm hood. In, I, yeah. Anyway, and I'm listening to this husband and wife, and basically the wife is just standing there all demure like this. And the husband's just beep, 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 and you know, and I'm watching the two of them back and forth. And then out of the clear blue, out of nowhere, she reaches into this little apron she's got, pulls out a knife and stabs him in the chest. And I can remember thinking, well, that's interesting, right? Mm -hmm. But that is how quickly it changes. You don't have a carbine with you. And let's face it, folks, even us pro-gun, pro-law enforcement people, we're not going to want to live in a society where our law enforcement officers are walking up and down the streets, patrolling with a long gun like you're an occupying army. They're not going to. They're not going to go. It's never going to fly. So no. Never. It's never going to fly. So just like the armed citizen, the primary. I hate to say defense because defense is like losing slowly. But the primary personal security firearm will be the handgun. No doubt. And, and I'm one of these guys, but I watch a lot of these guys get excessive with it. I mean, I carried, when we, when we did the switch from wheel guns to, to semi-autos, I, I, I get Is that with, the gun with the round thing in it? That's the one. And, and a hammer. A lot of folks That's what you and Wyatt it. carried. What are we yeah. looking for? Uh, some fire, please. Fire. Thank you. The... Uh, the, the multiple magazines on the belt to the point where yeah. I can't carry anything else <laughs> yeah. on my belt. No, I, yeah. I carried a good four or five magazines. I did. And I realized, though, that that's really more to keep the gun up and running because that's typically the shortcoming in the gun is how to how's the fastest way to clear it is to change ammo source and put a new you ammo bet. source in. You bet. But, but I was also one of those guys that if 
something horrible was going to happen on shift, I was probably going to be the one that was in the middle of it because that's where I typically was at. But I've also seen the opposite problem where people forget they have a carbine and they respond to a man with a gun call with their pistol. Yeah. Why the hell would you do that? If you're going to any situation where you think someone is armed, why not take the best weapon that you, just you have available to you? The handgun is a, re a reactive, reflexive weapon, whereas the long gun is a responsive weapon where you've got a pretty good idea of what you're responding to ahead of time. But, sure. see now, but see now, every man for a gun call, man with a gun call, now is a rifle call. And we've had situations where they already escalated themselves to a point of, a terminal point of no return, where the rifles weren't necessary. And it's like, we're not bridging the gap between when it's really necessary, I've got it, okay, it's slung on your body, great, terrific. It doesn't mean you have to have it continuously pointed at somebody with your finger on the trigger. It, it's just a tool that's there under those circumstances. And also, you don't need five officers necessarily all with carbines. Right. Have one with a pistol, two or three with carbines, you know, maybe one with less lethal. Have some options. But see the less lethal part. Where do you have four or five officers? Where do you work? <laughs> yeah. The, the, va the vast majority of departments, and we know this from experience, that have gone rifle have either gotten rid of or repurposed their shotguns where there isn't a less lethal platform available unless somebody's coming from a call-out with a 40 millimeter. 40 millimeter in a sergeant car, yeah. If, yeah. if the agency has it. But it's, it's like, it's either bullets or bullets. And, and they've, they've, we've made the rifle so important that the shotgun is so unimportant. And you know, we were talking earlier, that, that's a platform that did everything. It's versatile. And now we, we, it's got no value. I miss my shotgun. Can I have you give me a little shot of the crown? I don't want him a... to get too close. His hair gel will catch on fire. A lot or a little? Apparently, that's already happened to about you. About a finger. About a finger. Yeah. My thumb or my finger? No. I, I did mine from age and experience. Don't even go there. That's good, man. Right there. Thank you. All right. Crown. So I think we're all in agree that the handgun will be the primary, but that AR-15 carbine or, or, or uh, Mini-14, which is still a viable gun, yeah. is a secondary or a responsive weapon, wouldn't you think? I think so. Okay. Let me segue a little bit because it's not on here, but I kind of like to hear what you guys got to think. What do you put on your carbine? A light. Because they're like Barbie for men. You a know light. what I'm saying? Yeah. That's, if you have one accessory, it's a light. Yeah. Got to be able to see what the hell you're yeah. doing. I mean, I, it makes me a hypocrite because of, of now outside of my department, working in the industry, I have whatever I have available because I have it but the necessities are just a good, solid, functioning platform. Right. And the light, and, and like we said earlier, you sure. brought up the sling, these are, these are things that you just have to have. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a daytime only tool that you can't do anything with if you, had to, if you had to holster it. And my thought was always the sling was the holster for the long gun. You put a light on it because it just seems to make sense. Yes. And an optic, because let's face it, that, that red dot optic, optically, is simpler to see than, than iron sights. Simplifies the aiming process. I mean, you, you cannot get more simple than that. But I, think, but I think the light is the paramount. I can yeah. argue with you about lights on handguns all day. Sure. Well, let's argue. But, but the rifle and the shotgun of, of a place where there's a natural place to put one, it's an obvious fit. But I, I keep hearing, well, the chief thinks it's too militaristic. Oh my God, a police officer with a gun how is that suddenly militaristic? And I deployed three times before I ever got a light from one of my rifles, so how is it militaristic? Yeah, everybody so, thinks that our entire military is equipped like our special operations forces, and that is not the case at all. No, it's getting yeah. better, but it's, it's, not, it's not that way. Yeah, yeah.
Our streaming video subscribers of MakeReady.tv will now get exclusive access to the video versions of our podcasts. In addition, subscribers will have access to our episodes before they air on iTunes or any other free platform. Be sure to visit MakeReady.tv and subscribe today to stream our exclusive content to any device, anywhere, anytime. sitting here watching this you're here you're listening to it but i'm watching it and i'm having my bourbon and my cigar uh enjoying what these guys have to say here is something that actually i do want to touch upon and it's law enforcement training very very important here's the segment are police today getting the training they need no now you guys go ahead and throw in <laughs> well I think oftentimes police administers, administrators, administrations are more concerned with qualification than training. They uh, want to meet the state mandate. They want to meet the state mandate yeah. and they don't care. Also, uh, we've both had discussions about this, about the importance of, of being an in-service trainer. I think we were talking about this earlier today. Right, Dave, or yeah. Maybe I was listening to you talk about this earlier today. But some administrators are quick just to check off the box that they've had four hours of training in tactical communications. They've had four hours of training in firearms. Those four hours, it makes a hell of a lot of difference who was teaching those four hours and were they knowledgeable and were they passionate? That's freaking key. But too many administrators are too quick to check off the box that, hey, we did this training. They got it done. Yeah. A couple things. One, one of our biggest problems is priorities. You're in an era right now where you have a greater likelihood of going back to your administration and getting permission to use department resources and man hours to do a lip sync video than you are to get another range training day. And second, we know this through the LSL tour, that the national average on a patrol rifle program is a mere eight hour block of instruction. We've got guys that can't load, clear malfunction stoppages, do anything important with a rifle. <clears throat> I look at this from a military perspective that I had just under two weeks in the Army in basic training to learn how to shoot a rifle, and I handled it, cleaned it, marched with it, drilled with it, did all kinds of stuff with it. The Marines have over two weeks, and you've got kids that are coming into law enforcement that have done nothing more than play, you know, Call of Duty, and now suddenly you give them eight hours, and that's good to go. And it's all they're learning to do is qualify with that, that rifle, and See, that's it. We have a 20-hour minimum to carry a patrol rifle at my agency, and even that is... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, what are you going to learn in 20 hours? You have to, here's the thing. Cops don't typically train on their own dime. And it's for a number of reasons. It's not just that they don't want to be better. It's that they have so many other obligations. They have family. They have everything else going on. They have court. They're working graveyard shift. And they're not going to, in the, in the, in the time that they have to spend with their family, typically go to the range. And it's, it's unfortunate because they need to go to the range. Well, you know, I... I can remember back when I took over the agency's training program, I had people four hours or uh, four times a year for four hours. And it was great because I was getting frequency with them. And all I had to deal was the use of force topics. They, the other stuff was handled at a divisional level, corrections and all that, because I worked at the sheriff's office. And it was working out pretty good until the officers were their own worst enemy, or I should say deputies, because they would be there from eight to noon. Well, as soon as they left at noon, they'd go have lunch. 
and then, oh, I was at the range, so I'm gonna go home and get a shower, and I'm gonna change uniforms. So by the time they got to their substation, they only had like two hours left, and you know they did that by design. So what ended up happening? I ended up having them two times a year for eight hours. Well, we, we, we've, we've done this, not necessarily us as individuals, but us as a culture have done mm -hmm. this, where time, we wanna manage that time on our time. And I love that we get this perpetual comparison to us in the military, the gross militarization of law enforcement. There's no eight hour days in the military. I, I never had an eight hour day when I was active duty. We would, you would have a, a platoon in, in training, you would have a platoon in the field, you'd have a platoon in maintenance and it would continuously cycle. Days would be 16, 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours before you were down. And it, it was, you get the task done. And in law enforcement, it's like, well, you know, we can only do this, we can only do that, and, you know, union this and union that, and overtime this and overtime that. We have structured ourselves in such a way that, that a lot of the training and the tempo we need to do, it's almost an impossibility. Mm -hmm. You're right, and I, I don't have an answer, but I, I think in the long run, no, they're not getting the training they need, but logistically, it can be difficult. It really can. enforcement training that is something that we'd like to see done more and more of and unfortunately a lot of agencies are lacking in the training not because the officers don't want to do the training it comes down to monetary issues budgetary issues departments don't have the money to send officers to get the training if they can send the officers to get the training they don't have the money to give the officers uh, or to pay for the officer's ammunition to get the training. So one of the things that we like to do at our range facility in Swansea, South Carolina, is we bring in instructors that teach law enforcement officers for free. Uh, case in point, Operation Blue with, with Bob Keller, where Bob will come in and uh, teach officers from various agencies uh, for free. I mean, pistol and carbine class for free. Good job going on safe, but now keep that gun up for the replay. So it goes boom, and then back on target immediately. Once you know you could have taken a shot, then it goes on safe. I'm done. And even then, a free class still means that we probably have to supply a good portion of those officers with ammo because they don't have it in their budget to take the class. Now think about that for a minute. You're trying to give police officers free training, and they have to turn it down because they don't have the ammo from their budget or their, that allotment to be able to do that training. That's a sad, sad state. And we don't want to get into the entire semantics here of budgets for counties and townships and cities, but for crying out loud, people, police officers need their training. To get that training, they need to be able to get some trigger time. And with trigger time, that means they need to burn up some ammo and they need some instructors that can teach them. So uh, one thing that I know for sure Officers need more training. Anyway, next segment. Okay, now the next segment. Something that I can relate to. Running red dots on pistols. Here we go. What do you think of the trend lately of running a red dot optic on a handgun? Is there a fit? I guess what they're saying by fit is, is there a, a, a need for it? 
in law enforcement, is it, is it proper for cops to have a red dot on the pistol? I'm gonna give you guys my thoughts real quick and then I'm gonna let you go at it. I don't have any problem with a red dot on a pistol. But what many people need to understand is it's not like a red dot on a rifle. Where it's already shouldered, you bring it up, you know where the red dot's gonna be. On the pistol, it's kind of out there floating more than it is on the carbine. I don't think the red dot on a pistol solves the problems that many people think they do. But at the same time, I understand its simplistic sighting capabilities. So the way I look at it is I really don't much care, but what do you guys think? I think that's the future. I think uh, we're going more and more to that. Mm -hmm. I like to have a redundancy of backup sights, of iron sights on there, and there's some- So much like uh, the carbine. You either have, yeah, exactly. You either have suppressor sights, uh, which are obviously taller, Mm -hmm. that you can see through the window of the optic, mm -hmm. or you have something where it's an optic that's mounted maybe through the, uh, like a Duick defense optic, which um, uh, mount rather, which the optic sits on, and there's a, a front sight right in front of the window of the optic, and the rear sight is here. So the sight radius is very short. I thought, well, that may be an issue trying to aim the pistol Sight at radius on every pistol short. And I'll yeah. tell you what, at 15 yards, you can't tell a difference between if the sights are here or they're, it's, it's yeah. inconsequential. I, I agree, what do you think? So, well, on, and on that, you know, even the shield, uh, the, the UK system that is small enough to actually co-witness with factory sights. I think, uh, I think there's a plus. And I think there are people, and, and, and this is like this with any product, there are people that have gained a level of proficiency with it that are on the argument for it immediately because they're good with it. But from our perspective, dealing with the masses, where many people aren't, and, and you've got departments. I mean, look at, look at just something as simple as weapons-mounted lights. You've got the vast majority of agencies issue or authorize, but nobody's been trained on how to use it. Sure. And we run into Absolutely. more problems on the range. I've, I've got more images of a TLR laying on the ground at somebody's feet because it fell off their gun in the middle of, of a volley of fire. You, you, you're gonna, we're going to run into issues where... We're going to get to the point where well, I'll get guys with a rifle class that will show up with no backup sights on a, on a red dot mounted rifle. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't need them. I've got a red dot. Well, what happens when the battery dies? Yeah. What happens when you have a failure yeah. of that red dot? Or it's raining and you can't see very clearly through the window. You drop exactly. it and break yeah. it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's it, without the, the actual redundancy and then forcing that redundancy, we do in-service for a local agency who said, well, I've qualified my red dot. Okay, well, take the red dot off and let's run the iron sights. Well, I haven't, I've never zeroed my iron sights. How can you not have ever zeroed your iron sights? Well, they didn't make us do it. That's like I didn't check the brakes on my car or I didn't see well, it. had brake fluid in it when I bought it. Yeah. There's Jeez. also a considerable Good learning God. curve when you're transitioning to red dot. There is a considerable learning curve if you've been used to training on traditional sights. It's not just that this is gonna make it easier immediately. It makes it easier once you're used to it but like when I punch out with a pistol with a red dot, I find myself having to dip the muzzle to see the red dot. And, and, and that doesn't happen with iron sights, but it, it, there's a transition, it takes practice. You can't just put a red dot on and think that you're immediately gonna, gonna pick it up faster. And it cracks me up to people that say, well, look at the iron sights and then you'll see the red dot. Well, then why the hell do I have a red oh, dot? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's the... Well, before you go on though, Part of your problem is you can't shoot for crap. Now, go, go ahead, Russ, I apologize. Well, well be that okay. as it may. Yeah, yeah. You can't say crap. <laughs> Feces. <laughs> Fecal. Go on, Why do you though. think I teach go for it. shooting? Go the, for uh, it now. 
Think about way back in the day, and, and to some who will see this, they've never seen anything other than this, mm-hmm. but back when we had other handguns besides Glock. There was, was a time when that was the case? Trust me, oh. we know a time. Remember double action, single action? I know. There's people trying to bring that back. Now, I never had to, I never had to load down the muzzle though, but, yeah. but that's, so. <laughs> you're, you're talking to hair gel over there, so okay, go ahead. But the first time anybody fired a Glock, picked up a Glock and shot it, everybody looked at a Glock like this because of the way the grip angle was positioned in their hands. Oh, yeah. So there was a transition from one device to another device, and it's like we've forgotten that. Oh, they're all the same. They are far from the same. And if you look at any of the modifications that anybody will do to a Glock, that, and most of it's aftermarket, most of, very seldom is it at a department level because there's this thing about altering, altering a factory gun that somehow creates heightened liability. But we're all trying to make a Glock or, a, or an M&P or a Steyr or an FN. We're trying to turn this plastic gun into the same ergonomics of a 1911 so that immediately when it comes out of a holster, you're looking immediately across the top of the gun. Well, I want to throw that out. You just brought up a, a kind of a pet peeve for me, like the not modifying our gun. Mm. You were around for wheel guns. Without a doubt. The, I still own my wheel you gun. You did three things. Hmm. You changed the grip because that bell-shaped grip didn't match your hand. Does anybody's hand get longer at the bottom? No, but they look good on the gun. So you change the grip, you put different sights on it, and you did an action job because all of those interacting parts made for the glitchiest, crunchiest crap. If you cared about shooting your revolver, you did those three things. But now suddenly, if we do those things on a pistol, it's Oh, you can't. No. Why do I feel I like I'm in a Western movie I, I, right I, I, now? I got with you talking of, about revolvers. I got a set of Hogues or a set of Packmeyers as soon as I could because the senior guys had it, and it changed everything about the way I shot. And you put the gun. Yeah, absolutely. It changed everything. And and the only thing I did on my 19 is I got rid of the the plastic orange blade on the front blade, and I went back to a blue blade on it. You're okay. not talking about a Glock 19. So anyway, a Model 19 <laughs> was a four-inch barreled Smith and Wesson revolver with a round thing that held the bullets. And we so forget I'm a gun writer. And, and when you pulled the trigger, 158 grains of basically the size of a Volkswagen came out of the <laughs> muzzle of that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were the days, weren't they? Hell yeah. Yeah, but suddenly, all of a sudden, if we if we set up our pistol to fit us, right? It's terrible. And I had a guy look at my Glock 19, which I have a grip reduction because of what you just said. It shoots high for me if I don't. Right. Oh, well, you just modified it. You're, you're gonna have liability. But what about the pistols with interchangeable backstraps? Oh, because the factory did that. And everybody it's changes okay. the sights. Right. Everybody on a Glock, who uses stock Glock sights? Well, you have to change because you're the front an idiot. always falls off. <laughs> They're plastic. <laughs> also, Glock tells you to change the sights on it. Well, to their sights, because the rest will void the warranty. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, But where you're really going to go wrong, where you're going to go wrong is when you put some kind of sticker or some nonsense on your gun that doesn't make it easier to shoot, but just makes it look cooler. That's where you're going to run into problems. Are we doing an enhancement? Or are we doing a modification? Because I think there's a difference. You know what? I, I had a guy come up to me at a class and he, oh, look at my new 1911. And it had an engraving down the slide. That's all. Kill them all. Of the, of the Grim Reaper uh, pulling oh. his victims behind him on a chain wrapped around their heads. And what I'm like, could possibly wait, go wait, wrong wait, with that? Wait, wait who, who, did, who did the engraving? Can you, can you give I me the email? I don't know. I, he just showed it to me. <laughs> That's pretty cool. But, no, but it's like the aftermarket triggers. There isn't a SWAT team 
that doesn't have a bolt gun or a semi-auto that hasn't had an aftermarket trigger Thank installed you. in it. Thank but you. But you, you look at a, at a Glock or an M&P or, or even a SIG that are our three primary duty pistols that are out there, and the minute anybody suggests an aftermarket trigger... Oh, that's oh, liability. That's liability. And, and you've got at least one, if not two, of the aftermarket trigger companies that are as safe and as rock solid that do nothing more to the gun except remove excess travel and out of the trigger. And truly enhance. Truly enhance. Yes. You better be able to articulate any modifications that you make to your gun Bingo. are to enhance your ability to shoot it. Mm -hmm. You, you, you want to do show cool it enhanced stuff? my ability to perform with this firearm. Because that's more responsible. Well, it, the three of us are comfortable on the witness stand because we've done it. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that scares the crap out of them because, you know, lawyers are going to twist your words. Um, there is truly a difference between enhancing your firearm and modifying it because it looks cool. I'm going to give you a real quick story and I'm going to move on. I had a guy that was showing me his pistol and the sights that were on it. And I'm, wow, them sights are pretty tall. He says, yeah, man, but it looks so good in pictures. Dude, you're looking at that from the wrong angle. <laughs> you need to be looking at that gun from behind. But people are enamored with how their pistol looks in an Instagram but, picture. But, but see, here, here's where we've gone wrong as a, as, as a group is enhancement. If that enhancement was effective and in a shooting that you were involved in, every round that you jettisoned from that gun went into an intended target, there's not a question. It's when those rounds go someplace else that suddenly, it's like, well, it only happened because you enhanced that gun. Yep, it, it, exactly. And, exactly. And so, so that goes back to training. But let me ask you something. I'm gonna throw this out at you. Where did the lawyers of the world get the idea of going after enhancements on firearms. It didn't come from the legal community. Where'd it come from? Hmm. People in the gun community. Oh yeah. Yeah. I gotta admit, I'm dating myself, but I do remember a time when you would take a dot optic, mount it to your 1911, on your frame. You would actually have a, a mounting system where uh, the mount started on your frame, went up and over the side of your slide, and then sitting on top of that, you would put your aim point. And essentially, you're putting this huge aim point tube. And that's how you ran a dot optic. So if you wanted to shoot in competition, your slide would be reciprocating back and forth, and your, your dot optic would just be sitting there, but it was a beast. It, it was huge. Uh, but that's that's how it was back in the day. And here we are today, everybody is making dot optics. And more importantly, they're getting smaller and smaller and mounting on the slides. I mean, uh, your your Trijicon, um, uh, RMR, your RMR Type 2, the new Aimpoint Acro, uh, SIG has got into the game, uh, Vortex is in the game, Crimson Trace. Um, so many companies now make dot optics to go on pistols. I have a feeling there's going to be a point in time where uh, pretty much every uh, semi-auto uh, that's going to be coming out in the market is going to be set up with a plate on the back of the slide that you can pop that plate off and drop on a dot optic. Uh, now people just need to learn how to actually use a dot optic properly. And uh, we won't even get into the whole co-witnessing thing with uh, their uh, iron sights and, and the dot, but that's a whole other video. But anyway, now one of my favorites. Let's talk about posers. I like this question because as a guy at my age bracket, 
and not growing up with computers, I'll admit that even though I have social media, because in this day and age, you gotta have it to run a business, I don't really comprehend it. And some of the stuff I see on the internet really makes me scratch my head. So let me throw this at you. As longtime firearms instructors, well, me and you, mm. yeah, me and you. In the training business, what do you think of all of the posers and social media heroes versus the honest, experienced firearms trainers? Wow. You know, I see some stuff on there, and I see these guys that have 100,000 followers or viewers or whatever, and I often wonder, how many of those people are on there because they want to watch what crazy, stupid crap this guy's going to do next versus people that actually believe what this person's thrown out? Yeah. You know, to not ever diminish anybody's value, because there are a lot of real deal guys that have a tremendous following. There's a lot of guys out there that have, have done real well with that. Um, but then there's a, probably a greater number of guys that are basically gone the, the route of like jackass. They want to be a personality. Yeah. yeah. And, they, and they've done some crazy things, some dumb things, and the followers grow. And, and I guess that's the direction that it's going, but for me, it's aggravating. Well, you know, and I don't want to, and I'm all seriousness, I don't want to diminish Rich, but you and I are of the similar instructor generation. Mm -hmm. In order to reach a level of, say, national prominence, you had to actually be there and do that. You had to be in military, you had to be in law enforcement, you had to get published. Mm -hmm. And getting published in the very few firearms or uh, trade journals was tough to do. Absolutely. I mean, the editors reached out to you to come in there. You just didn't like show up and suddenly do it. And then you had to get published. And then along with getting published, you had to have some experience behind those publications and, and all of that kind of stuff. And then you did that for years and years and years before you reached a level where people would like, hey, well, this guy's got something to say. Now, all of a sudden, you just go on Instagram or, or YouTube or whatever and throw up some crazy crap, and suddenly people are going, oh, look at this guy. But what's scary awesome. is the new person doesn't know whether it's crap or not. The new person thinks, this guy has nine million followers. He must be, he must know what the hell he's talking about. And they want to emulate the stuff that looks cool, you know, the tactical scanning kata and all that nonsense, when really, does that person have any idea what the hell they're talking about? And you know, it's so easy to check out somebody's background. It's not that hard to do whether That's or not- That's a benefit of, yeah. of today's society is because yeah. when someone claims some crap, you can dispel that pretty easily. You know, my, my buddy, Ken Hackathorne, who to me is a true mentor. Oh, I mean, absolutely. He's one of the last of the great firearms instructors that kind of set the, the tone for where we're all at now. We were talking about a particular site or page or whatever that's called on, on one of the social media. And I was asking, Ken, what do you think about this? And he looks at me and says, Dave, I know you like that Crown Royal. You probably want to have a good size amount with you before you start reading that stuff because you're going to need it. And that told me right there that I didn't want to go in there because I was going to get angry. And it's not anger because, uh, it's not anger because I'm not involved in it. It's anger because, set aside my persona of being this grumpy old guy. Persona? Much of, okay. I, I can't say what I want to say. <laughs> Most of the time I get upset because I see things 
that are going to get people killed. Yeah. Yeah. And I really care about my students. I care about the people that follow me. The reason I do what I do is because when I pass on, I want my legacy to be, you know, he saved some lives. Not that he made a whole bunch of money or he, he was famous. He had a lot of followers. Yeah. That I did some good in this yeah. world. And I see so much crap that I just want to just want to reach out and grab that guy and just shake him and say, quit doing stupid stuff. That is just it's insane. And social media is good, but it's also bad because, like you say, double-edged sword, brother. These people don't know what's stupid. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll step back and well, let you guys well, have your well, thought. I mean, just just think about as an example, and kind of on the same same note that you're you're speaking. Think about when Jeff Cooper created API before it became Gunsight. The American Pistol Institute. Institute. Yeah, it was this big. Yeah, it was it was a piece of land in an undeveloped area of Paulden, Arizona, out in the middle of nowhere. And he was in a trailer, he mobile was in home. a double-wide mobile home. Yeah. And it was, and, and the, a lot of the ranges, he was digging the holes and the trenches and everything else. It was very simplistic. And the whole idea behind it was needs that he identified that he had been working on and had developed and now had the latitude as a private citizen. Do you remember teach. his original moving target was those steel plates that yep. rolled down that? Yep. But it worked. It did work. Yeah. What, it, it rolled downhill because of gravity? It rolled downhill from gravity. <laughs> well, it, like it was it. a great idea. Well, the, like the, 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 the jungle lane uh, range is still one of, it's still every class you do, there's one in that. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's just a, it's just a. It's a wash in the it's desert. It's a wash yeah, in the desert. Yeah, but, but the But the purpose that Cooper did this was to benefit people, not for the notoriety that, that ultimately got created. Gunsight didn't grow because Jeff Cooper had investors and benefactors and everything else. It grew out of necessity based on the number of students that wanted to come there. Right. And otherwise, it, it would have remained a double wide out in the desert with mm -hmm. Jeff in retirement doing what he wanted to do. Well, you know, I had the opportunity on several occasions to. Are we safe doing this? Uh, we'll make sure he gets on our right. Okay. Hey, 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 no, I don't need any more. Are you sure? Thank you, I'm good. You say that I now. I appreciate it. You say that now. Uh, give it to him for hair gel or something, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, I had the opportunity on more than one occasion to sit down with Colonel Cooper, which is Amazing. one of my greatest Amazing. memories. Yeah. That's cool. I, I mean, I didn't agree 100%, but no. what instructor do you agree with 100%? But you know what? He said that the API was actually his research laboratory. Yeah, he wanted to teach some classes, but he also wanted to sort out what actually worked in conflict. And I always greatly respected that attitude, but that's not the attitude of the, of the Internet wonders. Well, we, we've talked today about the great Jim Cirillo. Right. And, and Jim, as knowledgeable as Jim is and as close to a real-world Wyatt Earp that Jim probably was, his whole claim to fame as far as anything commercial that he was concerned about was a set of sites that he designed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't training, mm -hmm. but he was a great trainer. And it was based on a level of experience that Jim had. He was just simply trying to pass that on to the next generation. That's his mm -hmm. whole motivation that was there. And I'll tell you about Cooper. I never had a chance to meet him like you did. That's, that's actually phenomenal. But uh, so much of what I learned as a young police officer was mindset and alertness and awareness information that came directly from Colonel Cooper. Mm -hmm. I never knew that. I never knew the stuff that I was taught and the stuff that I parroted as a young firearms instructor came directly from him until years later when I watched his videos that I got from Gunsight. And it's like amazing 
that every law enforcement trainer I ever learned from was stealing from Cooper and not giving attribution. Well, which these is a guys thing that, that are, pisses me off because attribution is the key. right thing to it's do. It's the professional thing to do. Professional. Yeah. You know these guys that you know that bash and Cooper and the gunsight method, and I always like, well, wait a minute. Do you teach a stance? Do you teach a grip? Do you teach a ready position? Do you teach presenting from the holster? Do you teach clearing stoppages? Well, yeah. Well, then you got that format from Jeff Cooper because that is his original defensive pistol course, which is now 250. Right. Everybody mimics that. Yep. And the reason we mimic it is because it's the best way to do that. And I don't care who says what about it. I've got the latest, greatest, newest technique. They're probably copying that 250 I'll, I'll method. tell you this, and both of you guys can relate to this as uh, knowledgeable uh, firearms instructors and martial artists. So... With Cooper, he was a revolutionary. He wasn't doing the shit that everyone else did. No. He was determining what was the most viable option, what was the best way to do something, not unlike Bruce Lee. And the people that want to not continue to progress or evolve their tactics beyond what the Colonel did or what Bruce Lee did, I think the Colonel and Bruce Lee would be upset with them that don't worship me. Don't think that what I developed is the end all to be all. Continue the Move progression forward. in the manner that I have pointed you in the right direction. You know, one of the things I've always liked about Ken Hackathorne is, you know, Ken and I live in the same state. So, you know, we're kind of from the same area as far as, you know, police training and all that. But every time I'd run into him and we'd get to talking, kind of like what we're doing right here, he had changed. Yeah. He never stayed the same. Beware he was the guy always who's teaching the same shit over. He and over was and over. always. If you're teaching the same stuff 10, 20 years later, you're not paying attention. And see, that's the thing that people fail to recognize is Gunside has, as just an example, they're not the only one, but they have continuously evolved. Yes, they have. Um, you know that era. Um, it, it's not unlike today's era. You know, you, you look at kind of the, what was going on, and and, but the things that people were doing coming out of the military, coming out of law enforcement then were, were, were guarded, they were shielded, they were, they were hidden. You know, that was the, the beginning of Soldier of Fortune and, and, and that kind of arena. And it was things that, that just weren't commonplace in the United States. Well, come our, our first dealings in the first Gulf War and then, then, then the subsequent Iraqi and, and Afghani events, contracting and everything else, it became a glamorous activity that everybody that thought that they were either a bouncer or a former military or a former cop, they were all going overseas to make their money doing this. And it, it kind of changed the format of a lot of things. Um, I felt real lucky. Um, and every state, every state's kind of the same, I guess, in one respect, based on the time frame that you go to an academy. But in Arizona, um, when I went to the academy, we, we, we weren't even post yet. We were a system called ALIWAC, which is pre-post. And uh, all my range instructors at Alita, which was at the time our top academy in the state, sure. were all, all DPS officers, but these were all, these were, this was, Arizona DPS at the time was kind of like Alaska State Patrol. It was like the rural law enforcement. And all these guys were gunfighters, guys like Charlie Crawford and some of these other guys. And a lot of the guys that were, were old-time gunsight instructors, right. they'd all been in multiple shootings. 
on the border, on the highways, out in the middle of nowhere. And, and the knowledge they passed on and all what they wanted to pass on, they were gruff, they were, they were, they were gritty, they were a little, little, uh, little agitated sometimes when they would teach. And, the, and coming out of the military, I appreciated that because that's how I'd been taught in the military. But the reason they were that way was they were trying to make you better, mm -hmm. not trying to make themselves look more important. I went to yeah. the same academy in 96. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. That what was class, back when. What, what was your class number? Oh, you're putting me on the spot now. I'll get back to you after I'm not drinking. 156. Yeah. Did you really go? I'm a cop. Okay, well, that's true. All right. Yeah, it really didn't matter whether you were holding your gun like this or a gun like this. No. These guys knew that you got the gun between you and the threat, you worked the trigger, and you had the wherewithal, the state of mind, the mindset, whatever it was, to stay in the fight. That was the important part, and that's what these guys understood. And you know what? I think that's what Colonel Cooper understood. Absolutely. And, and I hear people argue that all the time. Well, that's not how it happens. How many shootings have you been in? Well, I haven't been in. Well, you know, I was outside of the military where battlefield engagements are a little bit different than sitting here between you and I distance when mm -hmm. a shooting happens. But out of, out of the four, two, I can tell you, I was running away when the shooting happened. You don't know what kind of stance you're going to be in. It's simply going to happen under somebody else's mm -hmm. terms because they're the ones creating the fight. You're reactive. You, you have Absolutely. no idea what it's like to have someone try to take your life. And people that try to emulate it, they got no idea. But you know what? There are people out there that have watched thousands of gunfights on YouTube and LiveLeak, mm -hmm. and that makes them authorities. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've seen so. Sicario three times. I know what everything happens oh, on the border. You know what the border's like then, don't you? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I've been asked about that all the time. Is that so how it really is in Arizona? Can I, uh, can I go ahead and say that the uh, posers and social media heroes suck? Yeah, that's cool. Sure. That would be the general. So, okay. I gotta admit, every time I hear Dave on this end of this segment, I, I still crack up. Um, his view on uh, the posers out there, the, uh, uh, shall we say, um, not real, uh, maybe that's just a little harsh. Well, anyway, I could be harsh. Uh, I, I, I just think it's funny. Uh, it is such a valid thing. I mean, the social media out there today has has created a whole new genre of uh, what we like to call tactical Twinkies. So uh, I think this was a very good segment. And so is this next segment. This next segment is gonna be about what background should an instructor have? What experience level should a trainer have? Now it's multi-part. Multi Do they need to be been there, done that guy? Or is school training enough for training other professionals? I, I'm not gonna start this, Wes, because I have very strong feelings about it. I've put them online mm. and, I, and I've been slapped around about it. You know what, I'll, I'll be upfront and honest. To teach fundamentals, to teach basic marksmanship. To teach shooting. To teach shooting. Yeah. No, you need to be trained to be able to do that and be proficient at it. If somebody is professing to teach you a specific skill set in terms of tactics, you, you need to go to somebody that has done that, that understands that, that uh, has, has applied that, so that it's being taught to you. Otherwise, you're simply a product of just a lesson plan. Sure. And there's nothing worse than someone who doesn't have a knowledge of the subject matter. They're constantly referring to their outline, and what they're reliant on is what 
someone else told them. It's third-hand information that the student is receiving. We not, now we're talking about the difference between an instructor and a teacher in Dave Spaulding's humble opinion. You know, an instructor is just somebody that recycles information. A teacher imparts wisdom. And let me ask you this. How do you have the wisdom of teaching people how to protect themselves from someone trying to take their life? if you've never been in the situation where someone's tried to take your life. And guys, just like you, I've been there. I know what it's like to have someone try to kill me. And it's an emotion that you cannot recreate in the training environment. It's, it's not stress. Stress is what you face when you're getting into the starting blocks or taking the field or in the outer office when your boss is getting ready to chew your butt. Do rest an incredible amount of pressure is placed upon you because if you do this wrong, you will perish. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that is an emotion, <clears throat> it's a feeling, it's a, it's a state of being that unless you've been there. That, that knowledge or that, that feeling, yeah. we, we run into that constantly. Um, I, I, I do a national training event for a, a big training organizations event every year. And I do a force on force program at that. And the idea on that is to try and replicate something. And it's really trying to teach other trainers how to run good solid force on force scenarios. So I had this Metro agency that was there. So I'm picking brains. And this is a 11,000 man department, lots of resources. So I said, you guys do force on force in your department? Absolutely, three, four times a month. I said, you're serious? Wow. Well, the SWAT team. Oh. And I said, well, who gets in more shootings? The guys that are least likely to get called out. Right. Who gets more shootings, SWAT team or patrol? Well, patrol. Well, how come patrol doesn't get to do it? It's a buck and a half a round. We can't yeah. afford that. Well, how often does patrol get to do it? Once a year, twice a year, every two years? Just all depends. So, well, where do you do your shootings at? Well, a shoot house, just like this one. Where do most of your shootings take place? Well, the last couple of years on traffic stops. Why don't we train around traffic stops? On a flat street. Right. It's not convenient. Yeah. So I had the commander from their training bureau who was in the class. I said, I want you to be my first role player. Are you okay with that? And he goes, sure. So I gear him up, Darth Vader costume, chest protector, groin protector. Fully so, there, so there's no impact whatsoever. Fully loaded blue yeah. gun with like 17 rounds plus two extra magazines. I say, see down that hallway, that last door. That's your RP down there, your reporting party. It's a loud music call. It's a little old lady who's complaining about her neighbor. Go down there, make contact, just let it play out. He goes, that's it? That's it. The minute he crossed through the door, out comes the gun. He starts pying off every doorway. He's looking up on the scaffolding. And he got half it in the hallway, and I stopped him. <laughs> that said, happens on that call. I said, yeah. I, said, I said, come back here. I said, what are you doing? He goes, what do you mean? I said, what's with the gun? He goes, well, it's, it's a Sims exercise. And I go, it's a loud music call. And he goes, but I have all this gear on. And I said, so in your state, is that how they teach in the academy to handle a, a, a loud music call? Excuse me, ma'am, do you have a problem here? I didn't think so. It's like, what are you doing? It's that expectation, anticipation. The artificiality yeah. of yeah. training. Yeah. yeah, and then you get that guy that'll show up in the same exercise, and the minute he puts that costume on, <gasps> Wes, I've had people hyperventilate in that before anything even happens. We had a scenario where But they're we were, not seeing it as life or death. No. They're it, seeing it as an owie. Because you can never replicate... Life or death. ...in training. I had a guy put the red man suit on and passed out. You always know. It Here's is the hot. thing. <laughs> the, the worst that's going to happen is you're going to get hit with a Sims around. 
it's it's gonna hurt. You're gonna say, ah, son of a bitch. But that's the lesson. You want to be like Jaws? Let me show you the yeah. scars from getting hit that's with Simpsons. Rounds. Oh, I have them. That's all that's gonna happen. You're not gonna die. You're not gonna kill or die in training. So you can never fully replicate a real world event. But you can come close if you have the right mentality and the and the, and the scenario is structured in a realistic manner. But we had this this officer who. She was wearing her mask, her, her Sims helmet. I'm in the passenger seat. She's to conduct a traffic stop and address whatever she deals with. Well, she starts hyperventilating before she's even put the car in drive. And she, take it off, take it off, take it off. To the point that she was so panicked, she could not take her own simunition helmet off. I had to assist her in taking wow. the simunition helmet off. And that's a police officer. I had people in FATS simulators. The FATS <clears throat> machine, the, the early electronic mm -hmm. simulators, would stand there and just go. And couldn't move. They were just <laughs> mesmerized. You know, the whole thing about you and your partner have responded to a loud music. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, you got the right. Did you <laughs> they, would, they would zone out. The force yeah. continuing this from but Sacramento you know what, PD. Guys, it isn't just being in a shooting. There's other duress-filled events. Have you ever had a female student in one of your classes that had been raped? Yes. Have them describe to you the feeling of being violated. And you know what? That's duress as well. And I've had a, any number of female students who have been raped that have got that whole never again attitude. So it's not just God a law them. enforcement officer or a military guy being in a shooting. It's the female that has been sexually violated or the homeowner that has had somebody kick in their door and do a home invasion. It, when there's a real than, consequence, that's the deal. Yes, when it's a life or death situation and you can't replicate that. Uh -uh. But it's, it's the relevance of the situation. In, in the course of doing practicums for, for licensure, for psychology, I, I, I was working with a veterans group, because I'm not a counselor. And I'm listening to a guy talk about things, and you're try, I'm trying to relate to him, because I'm trying to be peer counseling. So I begin to describe an incident I was involved in that took place at the width of a dinette set in a single wide mobile home. And this guy, me, at the, by the tail end of this, I was so emotionally engaged in what was going on that I had him in tears. And he was over everything by that point. He's like, I have no idea. And it's because his, what he had experienced had not taken place at bad breath distance. It had taken place at 25 or 50 yards away. Mm. And, um, and it was like suddenly he became to grips with it, but it's, it's people relating to that, to that situation. Mm -hmm. So in, in the question, for the tactic side, for, the, for, the, for the, the problem solving side, yeah, I think you need to have some experience. I, I get worked up about this, this subject matter because having been there mm -hmm. and having known that maybe if I would have done this situation a little different, I would not have gone home to my family. I get worked up about it. I had a, 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 a female who, to the best of my knowledge, is a pretty squared away dude. Dude. A female is a squared away squared, dude. Do that. Squared away individual. <laughs> wow. We're drinking. I apologize. Sorry. That's okay. I don't remember but what academy class I graduated I, I, from. I was, I was trying to make this point, and it's it was really... In the United States someplace. It was somewhere in the U.S. <laughs> it's really hard to make this point when you're putting it on paper. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Well, she comes back with a snarky. Well, you don't have to be an obstetrician to give birth. But you know what? It's great to have one there when your <laughs> wife has given birth yeah. because they know what they're doing. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, is that People who have been in that circumstance have a point of view 
that you cannot get unless you've been there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we and I can, I can, sorry, Wes. Sure, no. I can give you this emotion when I'm sitting here that I can't do when I'm typing. Right. And I can give you that emotion when I'm lecturing to you that you can't if you've never been there. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like tunnel vision, mm -hmm. auditory exclusion, you know, yeah. the, loss of the loss of digital dexterity is just, just way out of whack. It doesn't mean you can't perform with your hands, but you can't perform with your hands things that you have not practiced. Right. But I think it gives a value to your lesson mm -hmm. that you can't get anywhere else. Well, without, without the experience, um, you're, you're trying to do a little self-deprivation, you know, trying to talk about lowest common denominators versus people that are highly trained. When I promoted out of dicks and I end up going, which is code word for detectives, when mm -hmm. I, I came out of detectives and I go back to patrol, I'm the graveyard shift supervisor. Like, I'm going to learn how to be a good supervisor on graveyard shift. I did that. That's a big transition. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I had to run from our substation one night in the middle of winter in the desert, which means we had like 70 degree temps during the day and 20 degree temps at night with 50 mile an hour winds mm -hmm. to another, another district to pick something up from their substation. And uh, I hated going down there because I knew if I called up on the air in that district as the only supervisor available, I was going to get stuck down there answering questions or dealing with things. So I wanted to get there and get out quick. And to get there, I have to go through California to go back into Arizona. I get about where the California or the Arizona point of entry is at, and I can make out the figure of an individual walking on the westbound lanes of I-40. And there's no other cars out there. And we in have the this, middle of the night. In the middle of the night. Well, okay. we have we have a tremendous number of single vehicle rollover accidents out in the desert. People fall asleep or swerve to hit coyotes or whatever the case may be. So I tell dispatch, and I have to go all the way down to an off ramp overpass, come back. And this guy's 300 yards ahead of me by the time I flip around, and I get closer to this guy, and I realize, without a shadow of a doubt, he's an African American male because I can tell this without any doubt because he's completely butt naked, and he's drenched in sweat. And the first thought that comes to my mind, because our, our, one of our sister agencies had just killed their third or fourth person on positional asphyxia, that, crap, I've got go. a guy who's roasting yep. his ass off going down the highway. Yep. Well, in the course of talking to this guy, he's being as honest with me as he's willing to be, but he's not telling me anything that, 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 I, that I, I, I need to know. And my dispatch comes back on and goes, negative, doesn't come back. No wants, no warrants. And as soon as he heard that on the air, he looks up at me and he goes, Oh, no, 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 no. That, that's not right. <laughs> and, and I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm saying something should have come back. For four honest minutes, he and I spent a conversation. Four minutes. Kyle Dinkeller was killed in 30 seconds. Four minutes, I'm on the highway having this conversation until the dispatch supervisor comes back on in a very panicky voice, not asking if my subject is anywhere near radio shot, blurts it out over the air, 52, disregard last, caution indicator out of the state of Pennsylvania, aggravated assault on a peace officer, wanted as a person of interest in a homicide out of Texas. I'm thinking, stop, stop. You know, she keeps going on. It. Yeah. And then this guy looks at me and goes, yeah, that's me. That's Told it. You. Told you. <laughs> but for four minutes without knowing what to do, how far could I have dropped my guard? How far could oh, I have let that situation get out of control? Because hey, they told you initially hey. that no Four wants, minutes no is warrants. multiple hey guys, lifetimes. This brings, I'm going to transition topics here. There's a learning curve as a new police officer. I made so many mistakes that other officers have died 
yeah. making less mistakes than I made. There's a reason I got considered lucky. a rookie for five years. There's a learning curve. There is a tremendous learning curve. Uh, to think that luck doesn't play a role in things is being naive. Um, because it be, you shouldn't rely on luck. The smarter you are, the better tactics you use, uh, the, the more you tilt the odds in your favor. But to think that luck isn't a factor is ridiculous. Whoa, and if you look exactly. at yourself and you don't think that I've screwed up so many times that other officers have been killed for making lesser mistakes than I made that night and We've I all lived, done that. you're a freaking liar. We've all made mistakes that, holy crap, I, I could have got killed doing oh, that. Oh, yeah. What thing is to learn from the mistakes, and even when things go well, to analyze it and say, what could I have done better? And, and, and there's a tendency to say, hey, everything worked out well. No one got hurt, bad guy went to jail. No, that doesn't mean everything went well. That means that you were lucky, perhaps. How many tactics and procedures have been established by luck? Well, see, that, that's part of our problem. Yeah. In law enforcement, we have a bad habit of, if a shooting happens uh, and, and nothing gets damaged that we're in trouble for, we high-five each other and we well, walk away. Well, that was away. good. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. good. But we never look at it from a critical perspective that, holy shit, what went wrong? And, and that's really the key element here is because we're afraid if we say that went wrong, somebody's going to jump up yep. and try and punish yep. us for it. Well, and how many <clears throat> very high-profile incidents have set the trend for law enforcement training? Norco bank robbery, the North Hollywood shooting. Newhall. Uh, Newhall. You know, Miranda it, it, in it, Arizona. If there, if there was a situation, hey, thanks, bro. you're welcome. If there was a situation where uh, a police officer was killed because he was wrestling with a suspect and he fell into a mud hole and he couldn't get his gun out of his ankle holster, there would be a plethora of mud wrestling ankle holster training classes. No doubt. Right? Which had nothing to do with anything. He just needed to remember to draw his gun out of his ankle holster, right? But but that's it. It makes money. Absolutely, it makes money. No, so. I mean, and and we've had uh, as a department trying to fill the gaps with missing instructors. So we somebody promotes or somebody retires yeah. or somebody moves on. Uh, we had a guy, and I ended up taking this this position, but it, no, I wasn't this guy prior to me. But we had a guy that uh, became our EVOC instructor who went off to San Bernardino, which was the agency we went to for EVOC training, which was like one of the premium agencies to learn this stuff from, and uh, came back and he was teaching other officers how to drive. Had lost control of his Caprice one night and wrapped it around a telephone pole. So my partner and I go to interview him over the course of just kind of wrapping up the accident investigation. And in his testimony, he's telling me, well, I'm not sure what happened. What do you mean? Well, as I started losing control, I took my hands off the wheel and covered my eyes up. <laughs> It's like, wait a minute, turn that tape recorder <laughs> off. Let's, let's forget oh, this interview and let's start this over crack. again. <laughs> Holy ah. crap, Batman. Jesus <laughs> criminy. Yep. Are we ready to go on to the next? Anybody got yeah. any more thoughts? That's a good transition. Let's yeah, get the hell out of here. That was, holy smokes. Okay. So I think we all agree that if you've actually had experience fighting, that you're better off teaching fighting where anybody can teach shooting? Well, successfully fighting. Yeah, successfully. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. But you know what? We're all successful because we're still sitting here doing this. I mean, because we've all been in fights. Don't get me wrong. I've had my ass handed to me a couple times. I've had my ass beat more than once. You know one thing I found out about that? Mm. It's better to, at, to get your ass beat with somebody than get it alone. Mm -hmm. You know? So. Well, and, and, and the key element here, too, is, is the longevity 
and this is really where a lot of a lot of people forget to give credit where credit's due. But the real longevity is when you go home. It's the people that you have at home that keep you that allow you to continue doing That's this. That's right. Because I would go home, or my wife would have to come to the hospital to come get me, and she never stopped me from doing what I was doing. No. And she has the power no. to do that. Well, you know, the funny thing was is after I retired. And I started telling some my wife some of the things that actually happened to me, especially undercover. Mm. Yeah, she looked at me and she said, "If I'd have known that, you'd have she found would, another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have found another That's job." That's amazing, Dave. Yeah. I mean that that I, I've been a cop for 22 years. That that is amazing to have this whole other well, gets, period of time that your spouse knows nothing about. I mean, and, 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 you know, until later. I it, don't want to hide things from my wife, but <clears> there <throat> were things that I needed to keep from her. No, it, it gets get better. It. Yeah. Because we would get a, a SWAT call out, and this was pre-cell phone. This is beepers. Yeah. You guys, <laughs> pagers. Yeah. Didn't you feel cool when you got to carry a pager? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'd yeah. be on an extended call out, and she knew. She, had a, a, she was friends with our senior dispatcher. And I get home and I go, you're not gonna believe. You know what I, that means, Wes? She was fucking. She had. She, she had her eye out for you. We, I, we didn't have. We didn't have. We didn't have a. We didn't have a scanner at home. She refused to have that. I didn't want to live in scanner land. Yeah, smart. Yeah. But dispatch. She called. Hey, Wes is okay. Everybody's all right. Or he's on his way to the hospital. Or whatever. My, I get home. She goes. Yeah, I heard about it. Are you all right? And I'm still here. So you know, you got to give credit where credit's due because the support element behind what people do is also as crucial Absolutely. as what it is that they do. Absolutely. If not more important. Yeah. I think we can all agree that if you're gonna teach shooting, anybody that can communicate can teach shooting. But if you're gonna teach fighting, if you're gonna teach true combative skills, someone who has actually been in a combative environment can impart wisdom that the non-combatant never can. So, so are we saying that the guy that can come out of the holster and Stand stationary and tap a target and have a great and score have fifteen on a, splits. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah, yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're awesome. Aspire awesome. to and, be and, that. And dude. I don't want to. I don't want to bash on all you uh, shooting instructors out there. You're doing a great job, but fighting and shooting are not the same thing. No. Yeah. I'm Fernando Coelho, president of MakeReady.tv and Pantio Productions. You may know us from our videos, our firearms training, our survival series, and our documentaries. But now you will get the Make Ready experience in podcast form. We all know the movie Black Hawk Down, a film retelling the story of the soldiers who fought against all odds in Somalia in 1993. We are excited to be the only podcast having the true story from a man who lived through the battle. We will be releasing a multi-episode series based on an interview with Paul Howe, a U.S. Army Delta soldier who fought for his life. Today I want to talk with you about our nation's military involvement in Somalia. Dead American soldiers being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu near where the fighting was concentrated last night and early into this morning. Those kids could have been moved five feet to a doorway, had good cover, laid down just effective fire. Instead, he put them in a straight and undefensible position. Um, and what happens at that point, they stayed there because they're good soldiers and they got hit. I attribute that to uh, lack of leadership. It was a race at that point because you have all the Somalis, the SNA, the militia, racing to get to the helicopter, and you had us racing to get to the helicopter. 
I'm gonna go through my rifle, go through my shotgun, go through my pistol, you know, knife if I have to, grenades, pick up an enemy weapon, stay in a fight. Those who attack our soldiers must know they will pay a very heavy price. No, they can come from here, they can come from there. I thought we were gonna get overrun. I actually got into a point where I just kind of looking and saying, okay, this is it, let's draw this line in the sand. Anybody crosses that line, they die. Dave's right, fighting and shooting are not the same thing. Move on to the next segment. The gear that you will see at a class. This one's a favorite of mine. Here we go. Students show up with a plate carrier, a helmet, <laughs> a, thigh, a thigh holster, um, oh. all kinds of crematriments for a patrol class. And then cheap flats lights with old batteries to a low light class. Love it. That guy teaches. What is he the, teaches. What is the right gear? And I'm like, holy crap, Batman. Yeah, yeah. I, go for it, man. The whole. Let me take a deep breath. This is a good one. <laughs> you do lights, lasers, and, and this stuff on a regular take a deep, basis. Take a deep hit off that yeah. blunt. I uh, <laughs> and let it roll. I, uh, I had a class, a compromised <laughs> positions class. And I had, everybody was from a department, all wearing thigh rigs, not because it was a, a, a uniform requirement, but because it looked cool and it had become an authorized piece of gear. <laughs> the minute they sat down in a chair or the front seat of a car, oh, we can't do this. Yeah. Did you drive here today? <laughs> well, yeah. Do you drive at work? Well, yeah. Do you drive home at the end of your shift? Well, yeah. Are you dressed like this? Well, yeah. Then you damn well better be able to run that gear. Otherwise, maybe it's the wrong gear for you to have. I've had CCW holders show up at a concealed class with helmets with night vision on them yeah. and plate carriers. That's Me, awesome. Because I bought it and I awesome. thought it would be fun. With, with a thigh rig for yeah, a awesome. CCW class. And I thought it would be fun. What are you, you going to cover that with, a raincoat? You know, <laughs> good a, a poncho. You know, there, there is a cool factor to training now. And, and Wes, you and I were talking about this this afternoon. There seems to have become a time in firearms training where it went from effective and efficient to flashy and how it looks. Yeah. And we get these people and they're doing these crazy stances where their elbows are out and they're leaning back and they're doing all this stuff. Oh, it's better than that. It's, it's a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it went in a real gunfight. It's like, <laughs> it's like this, you know? Mm-hmm. But... And, and, I, and as I say this, I'm gonna preface it with, you know, the cool factor is getting more younger people behind the gun. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing, so mm-hmm. I'm good with that. But there's also a flash and panache to firearms training now that just befuddles the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. And you guys are seeing it too, what do you think? I'm befuddled by you saying befuddled, actually. That is. A disturbing term. You know what you should do is not how, catch your fucking hair. How do you I'm spell be, catch your flipping hair on fire? Okay. How do you spell befuddled, brother? Wasn't that a? I don't know how to spell wasn't that. Wasn't that a cartoon character? B e f u d d l e d. You need to drink some more Crown and it's light your cigar. It's not and I'm not writing a book. It's, it's, it's Elmer befuddled, isn't it? <laughs> Wabbits. Like He's Wabbits. too young to remember Wabbits. Elmer Fudd, but yeah. Oh, I get yeah. Elmer Fudd, sucker. You know the. Uh, the guys with the gear, 
Um, I get it. And, and I get the clothes because the various apparel companies, primarily 511, have really done a fantastic job in broaching the tactical world versus the fashion world, and I get it. And and from a guy who's, we're active in the outdoors, I love it because, you know, the, the outerwear, everything's gotten better over the years. Well, I'm, I'm a gear guy. Yeah, yeah. Good gear's worth having. Yep. Yeah. But, Arc'teryx! But if, but if I'm working... Uh, I like Arc'teryx, it's good gear. Go ahead. But, and I don't even work for them. Well, so. and it goes, right, design. It, it goes right along with your Canadian whiskey, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> That was so wrong. But go ahead. <laughs> okay, but uh, the uh, the gear, of course, we're, I've got we've got freaking Solomon's on. We should have some French vodka while we're out here too. Wait a minute, I not, no, I, no, I switched. You know why I switched? Because I didn't want my white socks to show earlier when I was wearing well, there my Solomon's. Yeah. Here we but, go. But if you're doing a concealed class. Then for God's sakes, wear it the way that you wear it because you've got to be able to train for it. Blue that. jeans, a t-shirt, and tennis shoes. Well, where I'm at, board yeah. shorts, flip-flops, and a t-shirt. Yeah, absolutely, exactly. brother. Exactly. And, and if the gear doesn't work, like I'll, I'll get accused, people will see me off-body carrying. Well, when yeah. you've got a pair of board shorts on and a pair of flip-flops, sometimes off-body is the only way I can carry. And well, that's stupid. Okay. It's better than not having a gun, brother. Exactly. You know, I, I, I guess. I'm forgiving of the younger generation of shooter because I just want more shooters behind me. But, you know, I always ask the student, how does this enhance your performance? Yeah, yeah. And if they stand there and look at me, then it's not enhancing anything. The whole thing about appendix carry versus, you know, hip carry. First of all, I'm not a big fan for hip carry. FBI behind my behind hip. Behind the hip. I'm more for three o'clock yeah, yeah. because that's the natural way. Hmm. Well, if you're carrying three o'clock versus true appendix. What the fuck's it? It's, what the hell's the difference? It's not a big difference. It's the ab abdominal yeah, carry yeah, 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 that many yeah, people yeah. have gone to. And you know what? I don't even have a problem with that as long as they do it well, efficiently. Efficiency is defined as the least amount of time, effort, and energy expended. I've got no problem with that. If, that's, if that gets them behind the gun, if it gets them carrying a gun, great. But, and I'll tell you what, Dave, too. Here's the thing, too. The most efficient draw versus the most convenient way to conceal a gun is that, not the same. Yeah. It's not the same. I ran a. Uh, I agree. I ran a, a class for a, a major East Coast law enforcement agency, municipal agency, and I was a concealed carry class where this department had required them to carry a specific brand of holster. So, like an off-duty gun. Well, plainclothes guys. Okay. Yeah. And they, all right. They're only allowed one type of holster. Okay. All the older guys, and I mean like. Dave's age. Oh, even my age. Oh. Had a J-frame hanging around. Shut up. Hanging around, a, guys. Go ahead. hanging around a shoelace around their neck. <laughs> Back up. <laughs> I have not heard that explained. <laughs> hanging around the trigger guard. I've been around a long time. Hanging around muzzle, their neck. Muzzle like pointed a, up. Absolutely. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, don't don't sense. tell me the agency, but give me their Makes thought perfect behind sense. This. You get it out. Makes so it's like sense. the brazier holster that many of the women are yep. wearing now. But okay. and, and, it's a, and it's one of the few places anybody checks. But Undercover? Under just plain clothes guys. They might have one on their hip, but this is hanging right here. Because the holster their department required them to carry had multiple safety things that precluded the ability to draw that holster out. 
That's interesting. Mm. So instead of going to the multiple retention, I'm just going to go to 38 around my neck. They would snatch the gun out, and it'd be it'd be firing up. Wow. Here. They just have to break the shoestring and or just just shoot from here. As crazy as that sounds, I get it. Yeah. And as I, crazy it took me as a while to digest it. And I thought that's the most badass thing I've ever heard. Because that's Serpico stuff right they're, there. They're creating a method of carry that meets the situation they're likely to face. Mm -hmm. Wow. How how many different gadgets have we lived through? Belly bands. Uh, what was that's the, still what, going, bro? What, what was the underwear? That, the, 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 under underwear. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, Thunderwear. Thunderwear. Hey, underwear. Yeah. That's the latest craze. Belly bands. What, what do you mean? I thought we, you were gonna say you have belly some bands. Thunderwear. Not, 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 no, I do. But I'm just saying that's a whole nother <laughs> belly topic, band, brother. which was an elastic. It was an ace hey, bandage, hey, 1980, and yeah. it's freaking cougar print. <laughs> but that's for another video. Yeah. Yeah. Different network. Yeah. Different network. Yeah, that's that's the AVN stuff right there. Um, but the <laughs> that's, reality, that's AVN some, shot shows, same for time. For these folks out there, a couple of days apart, but yeah, yeah, yeah that are making fun of the of the of the shoestring. <clears throat> having been in an undercover capacity, that's pretty thoughtful. I carry when I worked UC, I had a I had a model thirty nine single stack nine millimeter, yeah, double action single action first gen Jamomatic. I carried Jam I carried against my skin. <laughs> Love it. In, in Arizona, it's hotter than shit. You're sweating no. constantly. It pitted the crap out of the frame, the mm -hmm. aluminum frame. Mm -hmm. It pitted the crap out yeah, of the yeah, slide. Yeah. Hell yeah. You know what I carried undercover? Hmm. An HKP7. Wow. Nobody had an HKP7. Do you still have it? I do. You want to sell it? No. <laughs> no. I got an HKP7 M10 that I'm not going to sell either. In satin nickel. There's only 2,500 of them made. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can't have it. And you know what I carry the most, or yeah. anything else, with all the high-speed whiz-bang stuff that's out there? What's that? I carry a Ruger L LCR. I carry a little five-shot most yeah, of the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's simple, it's easy. It's with you, bro. It's you with me what? all the time. I don't need more than five rounds. I, have, I admit that I've become a fan of a, of a Glock 43. Here's well, I the can thing. Imagine. And I have the, I just the, Vickers, the Vickers Plus 2. Hey, here's the thing. Five rounds, because you know why? Because, Wes, that's not all you got, bro. Hmm. That's... Part of the solution of the problem. Mm -hmm. That's five rounds, and then guess what else you got? You got empty hand tactics. You got other well alternatives. But you know what? What Wes has got is got state of mind. I, uh, exactly. That five rounds is going to be done with authority. Have, have you have you ever done a, Have you ever been involved I, in a situation? A have you ever been involved in a situation where, by the necessity of the situation and and the na naivety of your life, that you were ill-equipped for the situation. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was, yeah. I, we, we, oh, yeah. I'd left the military. I was a civilian officer, and we had our second baby, and I get woken up in the middle of the night because we're out of diapers. Mm -hmm. I got to run to a supermarket at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yes. You mean you didn't and, put on your ballistic vest and everything else? And your plate carrier and your air Come on. I, I show up and they're stocking come on. I, we, they're stocking shelves. At and three in the morning. Three in the morning. I'm listening to Muzak as I'm running down the hall thinking about all the other crap she told me to go get on my way there. And I hear the obligatory, hey, Detective Dost, do you remember me? Oh, snap. And the fight's on. I had a real similar situation. Can I relate it to you? Yeah, let me finish. Go ahead. Okay. Think Campbell's soup, cream of mushroom. That's what, that's what ended the fight. 
<laughs> you hit him with it. <laughs> and, and it is me, him, and the Campbell soup all over the floor. Oh, Love it. good for you. Love it, brother. And, and it's the, called a weapon of opportunity. And the PD doesn't know yeah. who's involved, doesn't know who I am. I'm laying there. We're covered in it. It looks like somebody vomited all over the floor. Someone and, did. And I have a yeah. plaque in my Cream office. Cream mushroom soup. <laughs> yep, yeah. absolutely. But you know what? It, it's, it's the last time that ever is going to happen. I was in North Carolina, and we're talking about the early 1990s, before Leosa. I'm carrying a Smith & Wesson model 3913 in a uh, Milt Sparks inside the waistband holster, mm. illegally. I'm not proud of it. Nice I'm a law enforcement though. officer. I'm carrying illegally in another state because before, before, I, under, yeah, yeah, I yeah. understand the threat. Yeah. But you know what? I'm not flashing it around. I'm being real yeah, low-key. The last thing I want to do is Here's draw this is. gun. Hey, the statute of limitations is long it's past. It's over. Hey, you're good. Anyway, I'm a, I go into a stop and rob because my wife is very frugal. God bless her heart. That's how we save for college educations and weddings and everything. So we took all of the things we could with us because we were staying in a cabin. But I had to stop and get milk and eggs and perishables. I walk into this little out of the way uh, convenience store, walk in there. I'm getting my stuff, I'm standing there paying. And while I'm paying, I hear this guy, hey, Sergeant Spaulding. Oh boy. I turn around looking, this guy nice. walks towards me. There you go. I had no idea who he was. Didn't recognize him, he says, Hey, Sergeant Spaulding, you don't remember me, I'm sure, but I was in the jail when you were working in there and blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting here thinking, ooh, not good, not good. And he's bumping his gums and stuff like this. And then finally, the, the words that register with me were like, hey, you're not a cop down here. You probably don't have a gun. I could take you on. And I looked at him and I said, I may not be a cop down here, but who says I don't have a gun? And he's... And he turns and leaves. And I turn and look at the clerk and she says, oh man, I'm so glad you came in because he's been there and he's been giving me the creeps. Wow. I actually, when the Law Enforcement Alliance of America back in the 90s was pushing for the Law Enforcement Safety Act, yeah. testifying before Congress, my, my story, I didn't do the testimony, Ed Nowicki did hmm. in front of Congress, but my story was related to the United States Congress as to why we needed to have law enforcement officer concealed carry across the country. Yeah. Because you know what? How many of the people that you've arrested do you remember? Few. Not many. They remember you. Oh yeah. I don't even remember what academy class I graduated. They remember <laughs> you. And so that's all the more reason that law enforcement officers for their own safety not for the safety of the citizenry, for, for their own personal security. They need to go armed. Yeah. The same way that armed citizens need to go armed because you don't remember all the people you've had a confrontation with, but they remember you. See, and, and, and I think it's it's not just the gun. It's it's armed in mindset and armed in alternative tools as well. Yeah. Because, it's confidence that you know you can take care of the situation. Because you, sometimes you're in a, in a place where there is no gun. Yeah. No matter no matter how well intended you think you are, mm -hmm. there's just places where it is impossible. It's you. Yeah, it's you. It's a state of mind. It's awareness of the situation. I was doing a a show um, for another industry, you know, personality in Baton Rouge, mm -hmm. and I'm on my way to the training center to shoot the episodes. And I pulled into a freaking gas station to get a cup of coffee because yeah. I can't go anywhere without a cup of coffee. 
and I hear this, yo, yo, hey, I'm talking to you. I turn around and I was, I was having a caffeine deprivation issue. I said, what? He goes, whoa, it's okay, officer, have a nice day. I think right. you guys can agree that the idea of an armed society is a polite society, yeah. but it's also a prepared society. I also don't remember what academy class I was, but that's a whole but other that, fucking that's story. That's because you're an idiot. But anyway, um, guys, I, I think this is probably a good time as any to wrap it up. I've got to tell you something. I've had more enjoyable evenings, but this is one of the most enjoyable evenings I've ever had. I agree. Because you know what? Three guys that are truly friends got the opportunity to sit down here. I hope you folks got something out of this because I know we did. You know, we've spent the last few days together. I've learned stuff from US. I've learned stuff from Rich, which is hard to believe. But uh, you guys killed that whole fifth. That's more than a fifth. Which is disturbing, but okay, all right. Guys, thank you very much for spending some Cheers, time brother. together. I had a great time with all of you. Can you reach that far yeah, without setting brother. your hair on fire? Okay, good deal. We hope you got something out of this. We hope you enjoyed it. I know we did. And uh, listen, Pantio Productions, Inside Story. We hope you can spend some more time with us. We'd like to do this kind of thing again. But uh, if I ever get the chance to do this again, I hope I get to do it with you guys. Absolutely. No, this, was, right. this was a great combination. Salute, everybody. Salute. All Cheers, right. brother. Good deal. One more time. Cheers. Thank you very much, guys. Crown Royal and Dave Spaulding go hand in hand. So, if you see Dave Spaulding somewhere, are you going to be planning on seeing Dave? Bring him some Crown Royal. Does he need it? No, but he'll love it. Anyway, a little behind the scenes. While we were filming this, as you can see, they are drinking and they are smoking. And if you look at the levels of those bottles, they are diminishing, they're getting lower and lower. And you can see our cast members, some are doing better than others. What you don't see is the footage that we had to cut out where a certain cast member was getting pretty well lit and could not stay on topic. Thankfully, the other two cast members were able to not respond to what he was saying, carry on with the subject at hand, and we were able to edit that out. We really should have taken all that footage and put it together into a blooper. Actually, I'm gonna think of it. I need to talk to our editor. I think we're gonna have to do that. Anyway, here's Dave and the gang. Have I mentioned to you guys I like Crown Royal? Once or twice. You know what, there's more Crown Royal than anything else. You know what? It's kind of interesting to note that when I started doing my thoughts from the deck with Crown Royal, hmm. I thought like 50 people would watch them. I had no idea that tens of thousands of people would watch us. I was. I can attest. At Shot Show with Dave last year, walking yeah. around. And I wasn't walking around with him the whole Shot Show, but good portion. Me and you and Boyle, we would go back and forth. No less than three people handed you <laughs> bottles of Crown Royal. You son of a gun! I'm I'm, I'm walking up. I've got. I've got pints of Crown Royal in my arm. I'm, I'm going up. Ken Hackathorn, here you want one? Ernie Langdon, here you want one? Yeah. I, I, but from an inspirational perspective, yeah. I started doing bitch sessions on, <laughs> on social media. Bitch and I had, sessions. I had a guy come nice. up and go, you should do it like Dave does. Come <laughs> <and laughs> liquor there. Inspired so we you. started calling it, Love it. We started calling it uh, choir practice. 
And we credited the first one to Dave Spaulding. Well, nice. God bless you. I appreciate <laughs> nice. that. I had no idea. I was just sitting on the on the deck one day drinking some Crown Royal. Ticked off. What's about, the name of the deck? Well, ticked off about the posers and social media heroes, <laughs> and I put it out there. I had no idea there were tens of thousands of people that watched that. Oh, per, poor old Fernando was like, well, why didn't we do that for Pantio? Hell, I didn't know. I, I, I had no idea. <laughs> what else happened on that deck? You wrote verbally your book, Gunfight. And, and I don't want to tell people because I don't want to, let's tell it anyway. <laughs> what color Rich's crayon did book, he use? Gunfight, <laughs> was written verbally on my deck because we were, he, was, he was staying with me and my wife while he was teaching a class in Dayton. And every night we would go out on the deck because it was like September, which is the best weather in Ohio. It was nice. Just perfect. And we'd go out there and we were, that particular night we weren't drinking Crown Royal, we were drinking Seagram's VO and 7-Up. Mm. Well, I would, go, I would go in and I would make myself a drink and I would make it VO, 7-Up. I go make Rich's drink, VO, 7-Up. <laughs> and he'd get all tooted up and the more tooted up he'd get, he would, I'd, I'd be like sitting there like this and he would jump up out of it. I ought to write this book and it ought to have this in it. And he'd be like right in front of me and I'd be sitting here like this. And then he would get up the next morning and he'd be like, oh God, I'd be like, hey, it's jet lag. You're, I was like, I've only had two seven and seven. I don't understand. You're having, you're having jet I don't lag, understand. it'll go away. For three nights he does this. And then finally on Monday morning when he's getting up, I'm going to take him to the airport. He gets up and he's like, God, I'm jet lagged. And my wife says, Rich, he's getting you drunk every night. <laughs> and he looks at me, he goes, well, you son of a, what? I, it pleased it me. Works. What can I say? But you know what? He wrote that freaking book. And it, it's a great book. Well, it sounds it like, is an, sounds like your backyard's an, the inspirational book. It's an excellent book. <laughs> to this day, and he pointed out, when you make something memorial, it's because they passed away. But we still call that the, the Rich Nance Memorial Gazebo. And I tell him, hey, house. I'm yeah. alive. And he's still alive to, to tell the truth. So, yeah. Anyway. But, I, but I detect a Canadian. I detect, detect a Canadian theme here, though. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, you know, it's it, And the whole reason that I like Canadian whiskey is because... My grandfather, mm -hmm. during Prohibition, he wasn't really a rum runner, but he was the guy that would leave the little town where my, where my dad and all of them lived. He would go out in the boonies and he would meet the rum runner and he would get the Canadian whiskey because it came down from Windsor to Dayton, mm -hmm. which was even back in those days, maybe a five or six hour drive. Oh yeah. So my grandfather drank Canadian whiskey for that reason. Okay. My dad drank Canadian whiskey. I drink Canadian whiskey, my son drinks Canadian whiskey. And people ask me all the time, well, why do you like Crown Royal? I don't know, ask my taste buds. Hey, I, I've got you know, no so, idea. And it goes back, Wes. So my sensei, when I was a 16-year-old kid, my sensei, Ken Liu, I would drive about mm, 30 miles to, as a 16-year-old kid, drive 30 miles at night to go to my karate class, take my class, and then drive back home in the dark. He didn't understand like the legalities of drinking and stuff like that. <laughs> so, so, you know, I have a, the sniffles when I, I got kind of a cold sense. Say, oh, you take this, VO, right? Shot of Seagram's VO, that'll do you good. So, as a 16-year-old kid, I'm taking a shot of VO and driving back home. So I became There's a cause sort and of effect in, of that. <laughs> there you yes. go. I become kind of enamored with VO. So Seagram's VO. 
Reminds me of Sensei. It, it's just, it's good for the soul. So, so you're saying it's good a, for the soul. As a certified officer at a California, you used to drive drunk as a teenager. <laughs> hey, I'm not admitting I'm, that. That's an omission. Well, you know what? <laughs> that's your verbiage. Let's put this in perspective. VO inspires him. It, it's enough to have a he, heightened interview he, going on. Over here. three days, he Am wrote a whole freaking book. <laughs> Close. Over three days, he wrote a book. Here, there here, you go. Here's the danger yeah. when you enter into territory. Yeah. I did a class a few years ago in Whitehorse, Yukon for the RCMP. And I stayed with one of the RCMPs. I stayed at their house. The first thing that screwed me up was I wake up, I look at my watch, the sun is beaming in the window, my, phone, my watch says one o'clock. I'm panicking because I'm late. In the late. morning. I'm yeah. late. <laughs> so, so I finally realize it's 1 a.m. So I go back to sleep, but you don't sleep very well after that. And I get up the next morning, he's like, oh yeah, hey, I didn't tell you about that, huh? <laughs> but at some point in time, if you're, if you're there on the, uh, on the economy, especially in the community, at some point in time, the conversation will always turn to the superiority of Canadian alcohol versus American alcohol. Oh, here we go. And the next morning was the most difficult morning I've ever had in my entire adult <laughs> life getting up and going to the range. And the funny part was the next day we get to the range and it's like, okay, all right. And about the second or third drill in, this brown bear comes down to the back of the range and just sits there like a bear at the zoo. Uh, and we, I've never called a ceasefire before for a freaking bear sitting on the back of the range. That's pretty badass. And he sat there for a good 20 minutes. That's kind of badass. Years. It was pretty badass. He wanted to be fed. And it was like, thank God, I don't, this, the, the gunfire is killing me. You know what? I don't, I don't leave the United States for classes. I, I know you do. Mm. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I just don't want to mess with it. The one place I will go to is Canada because I just love the hell out of Canadian cops. Yeah. They have just a fantastic attitude about things. They They really, really do. And that's it, folks. That was Inside Story, The Blue Line. I hope you enjoyed it. We have more Inside Stories in the works. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the Make Ready with the Experts podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Visit us at makeready.tv and check out our online library of training content you can't get anywhere else. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe, share, and give us a review. We would appreciate your feedback. Patio.